0: The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side.
1: Hello there, welcome to our weekly podcast. This is a compilation of our best interviews from the last five days, all in one place. On Monday show, Sheila Ferguson joined me in studio. She's the former lead singer and star of The 3 Degrees, currently starring in Chicago at the Board Energy Theater. 30 years on, Zlata Popovic told me about her life before and after the siege of Sarajevo. Una O'Hagan spoke openly about the recent death of her husband Colum Keane and his book Journey's End: The Truth About Life After Death. Sky News correspondent Stuart Ramsey on his escape from ambush in Ukraine. And on Friday, show female Thatcher, Marika Lee. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Twenty-eight minutes past nine. I I can't (coughs) tell you how happy she is to be here. I love getting up in the morning. Oh, you love it, don't you? You bounce in here like a spring chicken saying. Absolutely. Oh, I wish it was on earlier. (laughs) Liar. I wish I I was on Morning Ireland talking about something else. I'd love to be on Morning Ireland talking about Donald Trump, my favorite person. Ah, don't you mention him? How dare you mention him? No, no, no. Trigger, trigger, trigger. No Putin and no Trump. (laughs) All right. Is that it? No, anything else
2: is on the table, but no Putin and no Trump. In fact, I have your contract
1: details <laughs> here for our interview. May and it I says say to your,
2: your listening audience, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've been listening to this gentleman for the last half hour, even though a lot of it was depressing. A lot of it was very uplifting. And I just want to say that you have a wonderful demeanour when you speak to your audience. You're and people should really appreciate it. Oh, my
1: it. goodness. Uh, OK, well, that's very kind. I'm talking to Sheila Ferguson, who is... What we call in Ireland a divil. Do you know what that means? (laughs) A divil? Yeah, a divil No, I never heard that. It means you're uh, There's another word I'd use is a messer. A messer, I um, know I'm not getting any. I don't know what the American word for this is. It's somebody who's like a gift of the gab. Yeah, and a bit of a somebody who causes a bit of trouble at the back of the, <laughs> the, back of the class. A in devil in Prada. Yeah, yeah, indeed, or whatever right. your jacket you're wearing, which could well, be. Well, no polo, you know. Sure. Welcome to Ireland.
2: Well, thank you. It's um, nice to be
1: here. It's so nice to talk to you. Obviously, you were in the day this great singer from the Three Degrees, but you're still singing. So we've got so many places to go here. But where I'd like to land on, if you don't mind, to begin with our conversation is Philadelphia. Okay. And the reason I want to do that is because I'll come to the the end in the end, but at the beginning, I'll follow you. You had a lot of moving around as a young person. Yes, I did, and it was unsettling because you. At one point, as I understand it, you obviously you're academically yep. you were gifted. You thought about psychology. You thought yep. about I presume third level education and yep. everything. Like that. Why all the moving?
2: My mother was mentally ill, and uh, there was a time when she couldn't look after me. Yeah, and I was then shovelled shovelled out to different. Aunts and uncles every two weeks So obviously if I had to move My clothes were in a cardboard box for a long time And I would have to obviously change schools So change and fitting in Has always been a way of life with me Going on tour It's the same as my childhood Just Nothing's changed
3: Nothing's you know, from Philadelphia changed. to Dublin,
1: you're still moving exactly. the whole time. Um, exactly, exactly. W- how old, uh, just trying to get into the mind of a child with a mother who's got a, a, mm. a mental illness of, some, of this sort, how old are you when do you believe six. that a child can comprehend that something's not the same oh, as all the others? I knew others?
2: Uh, between five and six, because Did I was you? the one who called the police to help my mother. And uh, when you see your mother being taken off in a straitjacket, you, it, it, you grow up very quickly. And you kind of assimilate a lot of things in a very short period of time. It's to the point now when I meet someone, yeah. for the first seven seconds, I know I knew I liked you.
3: Oh, that's um, <laughs> ditto. It's
2: body language. Yeah. It's your first impressions. Yeah. And usually, as Maya Angelou once said, when somebody shows you who they are, listen.
1: Yeah.
2: And I do. I really know that if they start putting on a facade after that, it's too late. I already sussed them
1: okay. So I see where the psychologist uh-huh. didn't go too far away from the tree nope. if I can mix my metaphors. So do you get that because we we do a show here um at, at Christmas time which involves children and so forth. Do you get that and I would I'd meet the kids and whatever. You can you spot a kid who's maybe in, yes. in a bit of trouble or yes, I can. has got a bit of a weight on their shoulder? Can yes, you? Yes, I, how, I,
2: how, I can. How
1: does that work? I wonder? I,
2: it's not something I can actually put my fingers yeah. on. Sometimes it's lack of eye contact because mm. they know that you see through them. Mm. Sometimes it's acting out. Um, as a parent, we all know how well, kids act out when they act out. There's always a reason. Yeah. And I'm one of those kind of parent, mothers who was, uh, I, I would tongue lash them to death. They would say, oh, mommy, just hit me. Please don't talk don't talk to me anymore. <laughs> I said, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. You must listen to me. Oh, God, please. You know, so um, I believe in talking them to death <laughs> and explaining to them why they're in the wrong. And this is why you will not go into my footsteps. Because one, at one point, um, one of my twin daughters I won't name when they get older you can't name who they are yes and uh, one said we know why you're so wild you're so strict I said why because you were wild I said exactly (laughs) that's why you're not going to be and the exorcist is coming out of me
1: (laughs) so when you hear the exorcist voice you know you're in trouble
2: (laughs) when they hear the exorcist voice they know man
1: who didn't put the cereal packet Run. away? You know, the,
2: you don't like dots on your Rice Krispies. <laughs> you will eat that crispy or die.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Whew, what a household! Uh, oh, it's yeah. only Monday morning. Yeah. <laughs> let follow that. You follow that in the sense that you you obviously have great insight into the human uh, condition, which was, I suppose, forced on you by circumstance. What yes, you as indeed. you said, so you got six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and into teenage years. Right. You could have become. A very introverted person who didn't want to face reality.
2: I was. And I, I I remembered always being at the dinner table when the family would have family gatherings. And I could see when everybody started looking at me like, oh, God, they're going to ask me to sing. So really? they knew that I could sing, but they knew I was shy and didn't want to sing. Right. So one of my aunts, my aunt, bless her heart, she passed during the first lockdown and we had a virtual Funeral, uh, which was hell because I had to cry alone, you know, because I was in lockdown here. Yeah. And anyway, um, she said, Wheelie, that's my nickname, Wheelie. I said, what? She said, you're going to be singing at the church for the the tea. I said, first of all, I don't want to go to church. And second of all, I don't like tea. (laughs) So she said... This is not negotiable. Oh, yeah. I thought she'd forget about it. And yeah. one day she said, now, put your, put your ribbons on. I thought, oh, God, I'm stuck. Mm-hmm. So I sang the Lord's Prayer a cappella. And um, all yes. the ladies went, sweet child, sweet child. And after that, I lost my fear of singing in front of people.
1: It took that moment.
2: It took that moment. Uh, but it was that an, is the
1: moment I can remember. Was it a big leap into the Grand Canyon in the hope that there'd be a no, net underneath for me No, it was me reel.
2: shaking at the knees and 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 just saying, "Well, just I gotta sing before these old people. Let me d- get it over with." And uh, but after I heard my voice out yeah. loud in the church. I remembered thinking, well, it's not so bad because they clapped, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Did, even though it was a polite clap.
1: Did you get a dopamine hit from the applause by any chance? No, 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 you, no. It, was a, it was just a
2: small group. You, I got the pride of looking at my aunt feeling that she was proud of nice, me and that okay. meant more to me than anything else for her to be
1: proud. I was watching um, Summer of Soul, that documentary. Oh, I'm yeah. sure you've seen it. And, That's uh, brilliant. It just, I was watching Mahalia Jackson mm. and, and I was thinking, you know, this, the church... And religion, and I'm talking about music, not, not the, yep. the spirituality, yeah, that's too. for another show. The music um, that came out of those churches all mm. around, maybe the South particularly, for, for whatever reason, um, seems to have fed rock and roll. Well, it did, and,
2: and I mean, you know, Elvis stole it from us. <laughs> you know,
1: not that I want to go
2: into that, but um, yeah. So Elvis it, was
1: watching Jackie Wilson and yes. saying, "I can move like that, I can sing like that, I oh, can, go, can go there." But you can't. <laughs> oh, um, but I know you can't. But the world yeah. is kind. History has been kinder you to Elvis.
2: Lifting me higher than I've, I've ever been
1: lifted before. before. It's a great tune, <laughs> as you know. And then Elvis coming, uh-huh.
2: <laughs> but he captured the audience. That's it. He never. He was always gracious in giving black people their due. Yes, and I met him once in Vegas, very quickly before you ask. And he how was, was that, the, Sheila? Uh, Brief, but well, no, he was eating all his peanut butter and butter and bacon sandwiches, so he was pretty uh, obese at the time. Okay, but um, he was Elvis, you know, and yeah. he was he was just a nice guy.
1: Did you enjoy being in the Three Degrees, or was it? quite, it was it a, a trying and difficult time? I mean obviously we saw we would have seen the joy and the and the fun and the moving and the beautiful singing Looking Back Now?
2: Looking back over my shoulder um, You can answer I'm everything in song be- <laughs> if you wish <laughs> It wakes me up I'm going to be writing my autobiography so I'm going to leave that topic if you don't mind That's above sure. your pay grade. That's okay Okay
1: <laughs> I, see in, uh, I, see, I see her in I see her in the contract making you speechless Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not a lot does. Uh, but I think you may have to come back and talk to us when the book is published. Okay. How about that as a deal? That's a deal. Everyone's winning. You it, yeah. Okay, Everybody's so we'll, a win-win. We'll, OK, so we'll stay off that, but uh, you did love and kind of fancy Marvin Gaye when you were younger. <gasps> now, that's Shall we talk I, about that,
2: him? That, that's when the roar of the maddening crowd came. So tell me came. about that. Well, that was my first gig at the Apollo Theatre and I was 14 yeah. and I was singing my first single, When Will I Sing? <laughs> nah sorry. My first single, Little Red Riding Hood. And I was nervous because this is like the Apollo where everybody yeah. was launched. And if they didn't like you, I heard they threw tomatoes at you. Wow. And I'm ready to be hit with tomatoes, you know. And I had nowhere near the confidence I have now. Nowhere yeah. near. So I went to Marvin Gaye's. He was at the top of the bill, and I, my name was at the bottom. And I went to his dressing room to, before I could finish knocking at the door because I kept backing off like I'm not going to do this, he opened it. He said, Sheila, come on in. I went, ha, 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 You know, and he looked like a god in that Blue satin costume with the ruffled uh, shirt and the bow tie. And he sat, he sat, sat, sit, sit down. And we talked, and he was so nice. Right. And he, he put me at my ease yeah. knowing that I was nervous. And that's something I've carried with me all of my life. Lovely. Career. What a great skill. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, he signed my autograph. And do you know that we stayed friends until he died Did in Did you really? Indeed. Indeed.
1: A gentleman then?
2: Very much so. Very much so, but I remembered thinking now, as I once we hit our the height of our fame, I remembered f- seeing people who kind of knew who I was, and even still, hmm. and they didn't know what to do, and I always extend my hand and say hi, nice to meet you, because it puts them at their ease. Yes. because he did that to me. What a nice. So lesson. if you take the good things that life shoves at you, and put them all together. You 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 can do some good, and and I like doing good. I like teaching, and I like doing good.
1: Could you have been a teacher in another life? Yeah, I got that sense from you. And and what subjects would you like to teach? Sure.
2: um. Actually, anything. Apparently, all my cousins say. I used to sit them down and make the, after school to make them be my pupils. Did you really? <laughs> I did. What a nerd!
1: <laughs> I know. I know. It's terrible. Ruins my whole reputation. My sex life is gone forever now. Actually, speaking of which, uh-huh. you did say at one point. Too early for that. Not in that. Uh, <laughs> Never too early. <laughs>
2: As you were saying. As I was saying. As you were saying. Um,
1: this is quite the morning. Um, I, <laughs> as I was saying. So <laughs> no, I've heard that before. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you're going to be put off the air now. I think we were he's shut He's a very, very gorgeous guy, ago. ladies yeah. and gentlemen. He's yeah. real, I heard him say he's married with a 10-year-old son. But uh, he, let me just tell you, he's, some, he's, a, he, he's a hottie.
1: <laughs> you got, uh, well, as I say. He's great. turning red now. I am, yeah. You, you, you have me bright red.
2: As you were saying,
1: I have. I, I have. I've been told I have a great face for radio, <laughs> so you won't see me on <laughs> on I'm stage sorry with you Okay, oh, so we're back to your sex life. Um, oh, no. You said at one point, uh, which was that huh? Prince Charles kind of ruined your mojo because. Well, I
2: mean. What happened? Everybody believed that we were lovers what? when we
1: weren't. How did that happen? I,
2: well, that was a song I recorded. How did that happen? Um, after, the, well, he, he, he did make several moves, but I didn't let, I didn't take him up on sure. it. You know, I wasn't going to be a notch on his bedpost. Um, I always figured that they'll sleep with you, but they won't marry you, so there's no future in it, because I'm a good girl. I am. Hmm. and, um, but you know it was it was it was nice having him flirt, and um, I gave him toe to toe, and I think he liked that because I didn't catow, yeah he would say um." I have a train. I said, yeah, well, I got a plane. <laughs> I, I didn't, but I had to have a comeback, you know. I had to have a comeback. I'm from from the ghetto, you know. So um, he just laughed. He said, Shirley, you're something else. I said, yeah, so are you. <laughs> you know, so I always yeah. toe-toed yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think he liked being treated like a normal guy, sure. not like the future king of England, which never dawned on me at all. Yeah. But that would have put me off even further, you know, because I realized then... Um, because we, we people don't realize it, but we did charity work for every member of the royal family, not just Charles. Yeah. And um, there is a cult within the women in the in in the organization, and I think some of them believed that Charles was having a thing because I got snubbed at once, and I said to the girls, "Okay, so they believe it too." Yeah. And they said, "Yeah, we see it." Okay So it's it's very interesting It's but, uh, something
1: very subtle Okay But you had a you. It sounds like you had a really Kind of fun Flirtatious relationship with him As opposed it, to it anything else It was just so
2: quick It's just the press made it Such yeah. a big well, deal as they,
1: as they can you know, do And um, we, we in met
2: Two or three times We I went to see him play polo He showed me his XJS And he, all of our cassettes were Remember them yeah. Cassettes were in the middle And he really He was a fan
1: So you went Did you go for a spin with him In his No he was playing
2: polo It was on oh, the halftime
1: um, But you have this kind of Quite close relationship with the UK Okay, don't you I mean yes. you, you, and you married a, a British gentleman and divorced and him and Yes. divorced him <laughs> <at> an <emergency>. <laughs> ladies and <laughs> gentlemen I'm interviewing Henry Waithe this morning um, uh, <laughs> I didn't behead
2: him I just divorced him
1: <laughs> no you lost the head that's what absolutely. happened absolutely and um, so, so but you, and you had your daughters Evelyn,
2: I'm coming to see you yeah.
1: <laughs> keep, keep put the kettle on Anne mm. Sheila's on the way yeah. your daughters are can I ask you how old they are now yeah, they're or? 40 they're 40 yes Crikey! So you were a child bride? Um,
2: No, I'm 74 now, and I'm very proud of it, and I have no problem admitting it because the press keep writing about it. So once they keep writing about something, there's no sense denying it any further. I never denied it. I
1: can't. I'm. I'm. She is. Are you? What age are you? 74. You know. I am. I refuse to believe. I should know my age, shouldn't I? Yeah, but I also think you're a messer, and you're probably just trying to spin me a yarn just for the No, crack. no, 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 no. Would I do that? Yes. Well, I would, but I've I, I, you you twenty I, minutes. I, yes. <laughs> I don't happen to be doing it at the at the moment. <laughs> wow, that's 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 breathtaking. Mm, yeah.
2: Yes, I would.
1: For think somebody who so. came in here crying and whinging about having to get up early for an interview. <laughs> Um, I was up a lot earlier than you, sucker. <laughs> I had to put my face on. You, you, you come in looking like that. Yeah, I do, and I go home looking like <laughs> it. So, what I wanted to talk to you briefly about, of course, is that you're here in Dublin for a very specific reason, and you're going to be in Chicago. Yeah. And it's happening from. Is it it's starting tomorrow? The fifth of April. Tomorrow. How are you feeling about that?
2: Well, every week it's a different town, so yeah. it's another town. No, it's <laughs> not. Yes it is It's
1: Dublin Oh there Come you on, go Sheila It's
2: two weeks in Dublin though
1: <laughs> Okay so two yeah. weeks for you is As I said earlier on about something else A lifetime like It's dog ears so <laughs> Yeah But this comes back to full circle To our earlier conversation mm. Which is what I really wanted to do Is get to this point Which is here's, here you are now um, At this point in your life In your career There you were then as a little girl Trying, yeah. to, trying to mind your mum and, and trying to be a good person Still on the move Yeah How do you feel about that?
2: I feel great. As long as you feel good about what you do and you go to work happy, you can't ask for more than that in life Mm. because you never know what curveballs are going to be thrown at you. So if you prepare yourself, I look for the worst and hope for the best. And I got that from somewhere. I don't know where. I must have read it because I couldn't have made it up. Um, it seems to work because that way I don't get shocked as easily as I would if I were looking through rose-tinted yes. glasses all the time.
1: So you're managing expectations all the time. Exactly. OK, I understand. Exactly. Uh, we've got some messages from our listeners, Sheila. Oh, uh, really? so let's say hello and see how they're uh, doing. Who wants to go on a date? <laughs> uh, is, that, <laughs> is that what you want? Well, well yeah. Well, a date with with uh, the with Irish man would be nice. Oh yeah, as long as he's taller than me. Okay, and send all your invitations to the borgosh Energy Theatre. Bank account details <laughs> uh, would be handy too. Credentials. She's uh, I'm, I'm, you're, you're joining us as I speak to the Tinder swindler um, uh, herself, uh, Sheila Ferguson. <laughs> what a wonderful laugh Sheila has says the text. A great guest for a Monday morning from oh. Vivian Lambert. Well said. Oh. Sheila Ferguson is. Is a delightful minx.
3: Ooh, I <laughs> hello. like it.
1: This, uh, hello. Uh, hello. I, I, if, if you didn't, if you told me Austin Powers sent that in, I'd believe it. <laughs> but it's from uh, it's from Leo, who says I thoroughly enjoyed her appearance on the Real Marigold Hotel, oh. and her singing voice is exquisite.
2: Oh well, I have to agree with him on that. <laughs>
1: as you saw there you heard the door open <laughs> humility just left It's and warming up in here It's it? getting hot in here Morning Ryan It is lovely hearing the beautiful Sheila Ferguson Aww. on your show this morning I watched a rerun of The Real Marigold Hotel last week which Sheila featured in She was great uh, Have a good day oh, That's from Christine in Cork and um the Song from the t- Three Degrees brings me back forty-two years when I first met my wife dancing at Fernando's nightclub in Limerick. Which, of course, sh- 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 Sheila, I'm yes, sure you were there a few yes. times. Yeah, that was a lovely sh- a slow <laughs> dance we loved together. Brings back memories forty years later. Married forty years married this month from a Limerick oh, listener. Oh, lovely! Not only has Sheila got a great singing voice, says Stuart, she has a great voice to listen to, and hopefully she reads her own autobiography when you write it on Audible. I, I intend to read it. You there will should be an do. audiobook. You've yeah. got a great voice. Thank you. Omg, Ryan. Crying, <laughs> crying, laughing here at Sheila. For her. like, what a riot. Smart and feisty. I love her. Oh, I'm loving Ireland. I'm loving it. <laughs> I think we should swap seats and it's, you it's should really take it over.
2: It's really cathartic being here because the last time I was st- in Ireland uh, starring in, in um, Fame, the musical. Oh, yeah. Um, um, the, the man that I had been with for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, I got a call because we had Sunday shows and I got a call from my Irish friend, John Byrne. Yes. And I said, why are you not in church? You know, you're a born again Christian. You should be in church. He said, no, I just wanted to see how you are. I said, I'm fine. Why? What's the matter? And, um, he said, no, no, no. He said, call me when you get a minute. So I said, John, what's the matter? And, uh, he said, don't no, just call me when you get a minute. And I thought, oh God, what happened? And the first thing you think of is your mother. Something's yeah. wrong, you yeah, know. I'm sure. And uh, so then the director and the company manager came in, and said, "Sheila, sit down." I said, "What the hell is going on with you people? You're driving me to drink here." And um, the uh, Ashlyn, the company manager, said, "John's dead." I said, "John who?" And this is the guy that had just left me in Cork the night before. Oh no! And she said, "John's dead," and I, it, it, all of a sudden. It it hit me and I burst into tears and then I stopped and thought, Okay, I don't I can't run my makeup. The show starts, the curtain goes up in ten minutes. Oh my goodness. He's dead in Lincoln. I live in Mallorca, I'm in Cork, people have paid their money, I gotta go on. And the director says, Sheila, we don't think it's a good idea to go on. I said, I have got to go on. People paid their money to wow. see me and they're gonna see me. So he said, Okay, I'm gonna sit here and um you uh, sing right to me. And yeah. I said, okay. And I got through two shows. And then on the way home, because the Monday was off, I had given up smoking and I bought a carton of cigarettes and a bottle, of uh, a vat of vodka and got back to the hotel and started making phone calls to find out what was going on and organizing the funeral. So this, in a way, wow. is... Uh, it's, it's going to be difficult to get through Ireland without it is, the it memories is. of I that. I understand. But if anything can do it, Chicago can. Not mm. only that,
1: but, you know, Irish people will, now that they've heard your story, I hope you're okay. And now that they've heard your, I'm sending you a big hug over thank here. Thank you. But, and now that people have heard your story, Sheila, when they go to see you, they'll send all that oh, positive vibe. Thank you. From the floor and uh, from the auditorium to the stage, <sighs> which will go straight into your heart and lift you 3 feet off the I'm stage. Sorry, I told How about the that? Story. No, do you know what? I <sighs> think it, do you know what? I, I reckon it's healthier you know this from your interest in psychology. It's healthier to say it and have it out there rather than have it pent yeah, up. So I now suppose. you can go out there and, and give it everything. i till
2: just now. No, it's actually. a
1: beautiful thing in some ways because here you are back here 10 um, years later. Yeah, communing with the past, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's Not a bad you're thing right. at all. you're right. Okay. Okay, and, next. Uh, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. You keep going for I'm a few getting, more minutes yeah, and I'll yeah, let yeah. you go then. Uh, you're OK? I'm fine. All right. Um, <coughs> Sheila's bellowing laugh. She's moved on. She's moved from the laughing. You are so five minutes ago. We're into tears now. Uh, Sheila is a tonic on a Monday morning. You have an infectious energy and I can't oh. wait to read your book, uh, oh. says Sonia. I saw another one. Sheila's a wonderful person. I remember 40 years ago in the Matter Hospital. the Three degrees visited after their concert. My mother was just diagnosed oh. with Alzheimer's and loved singing. And Sheila sang with her and it was so special. Oh. And before phones were recording, but what a warm, kind person she is. I can thank you now, 40 oh. years later, for that gesture from oh Helen O'Connor in our chair. You know. oh, she's a mess. <laughs> and you spent three hours putting that face I together. I mean, God, you'll have to go home and get a new one. I
2: know, I'm uh, going to buy one.
3: <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> isn't that what you guys do? <laughs> Sheila, you're a tonic on a wet Monday for Marie. I'm 73 years old oh, and wow. everyone's saying the same thing. I'm, oh, I'm, we we'll so leave good. it there. I'm going to let you, you so go. so much. I've enjoyed her. Kiss the
2: Blarney Stone. All of you have kissed Everyone's the Blarney
1: Stone. the Blarney Stone. Sheila Ferguson, I've really enjoyed meeting you. I think thank already you. you're probably one of my favorite people to Aww. have interviewed on this program Aww. in all the years. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, you're a real thank joy. You. You're gonna be in Chicago and that starts tomorrow night in the Borgash Energy Theatre, running until Saturday, the sixteenth of April, at Ticketmaster for Tickets. But and if you're going, be sure to send good vibes to Sheila and make sure she's happy and welcome. In, a, in this beautiful country of thank ours. Thank you. I already am. Thank you. Get the book going. OK. And get home to Ireland to talk to us again and Absolutely. we'll do it We'll do it all again someday. And the Ferguson clan, if you're out there, I love you all. Sheila Ferguson, everybody. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> 9.30 this Tuesday morning. It's good to have you with us. And I want to introduce you to our guest this morning. Her name is Zlata Filopovic. And good morning to you, Zlata. And thank you for being here. Good morning. This very day, uh, 30 years ago, you woke up, pretty much to a changed world order, one that is so resonant uh, today because of what's happening in Ukraine. And I recall it well. Uh, what was happening in your country at the time? I was a student and I remember being horrified at the at the reality of uh, such a contemporary war. If you wish, tell us what happened in your life thirty years ago today.
0: Well, it's a sort of a, a strange thing. I mean, I'm from Sarajevo, from Bosnia, and the conflict had been going on all around different parts of former Yugoslavia. But I think when kind of like anything bad in life, you just think and ascribe it to other people. It happens to other people. Mm-hmm. So even though it was happening in Slovenia, in Croatia, it was encroaching towards my city of Sarajevo. We kept thinking, well, this can happen over there, but it's not going to happen here. But the 5th of April 1992 was the day that I heard gunshots and sounds of explosions for the first time in my life and that was the start of the siege and I always say it was a moment kind of when my life was cut into two yes. the period before 5th of April 1992
1: yeah. and BCAD you know yeah. and you were what age at that point? I was 11 11 years of age I can't imagine how terrifying that must have been but you've described before the day before and in some ways that's 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 as, as dark because it was so Clear, the radio said, much. I think you've said it before, they, they, it was like they were doing a weather forecast. Mm. Uh, tomorrow, everything changes. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah,
0: as... I mean, it's sort of, you know, I think it was my, my aunt who had gone to the hairdressers and it was, you know, being discussed in the hairdressers, the way you'd discuss a snowstorm coming over, that, you know, this was the war is going to start this weekend. It was also, that weekend was Eid, so there was a kind of a significance to that particular weekend. A month prior, there was a morning when we all woke up and the whole city was barricaded. And then that passed, and then we thought... That was strange, but that was a blip and it's not going to happen. So when there was this idea that, you know, war is going to start tomorrow, we kind of all thought that's a very strange thing. We're discussing in you know, hairdressing appointments, but um, it's not going to happen. And and then it did. So it was just a very strange, slow kind of descent into it that I think none of us believed or wanted to believe um, and kept kind of
1: pushing away. How was life before the siege began in your world? Can you describe what your family set up and what you were doing and the ordinariness of it, if you will? Yeah, it
0: was, it was very much kind of like any kind of, you know, European childhood. So, you know, late 80s, you know, lots of MTV and, you know, Paula Abdul and Michael Jackson and Madonna. And there was a sort of, you know, it was really an idyllic, perfect childhood. You know, I went to school, music school. My parents were professionals. My dad a lawyer, my mom a chemical engineer. We lived in the center of the city, you know, every, you know, because we had the Olympics in 1984 in the mountains. We'd go skiing to the mountains. Great facilities. We'd go to the Croatian coast in the summer, and you know all the sort of very just
1: ordinary but kind it, of middle class, but, but charmed existence in some ways. Absolutely I mean, it was, it,
0: perfect, yeah. perfect. You know, I think you know. Only now I realize perfect. You know, and once it's taken away. But you obviously, you're not aware of it when it, when you are living through it. But yeah,
1: for for people who who only know the name Sarajevo as a sort of a, a war city or a war a war name, if you like. What? Why was Sarajevo besieged? Is, is that is that too silly a question? Or no, it was it just was to actually put a bit of context on it for
0: yeah. It's it's a sort of a perfect city for a siege in a sense. I mean, these mountains that I mentioned where the the Olympics were held in 1984. It's a kind of a quite a mountainous region, and the city of Sarajevo is in a valley surrounded by these hills and then mountains outside. So it's a perfect city for a siege because it's a, it's inside it's encircled it's already. A cold one. Yeah. Exactly. So if you put heavy artillery and snipers around it, you can control the city. And that's essentially why it, it, it was a siege.
1: And who was besieging it and why? So
0: (laughs) those are complicated questions. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there was a sort of a, you know, the country that had existed was Yugoslavia. You know, different countries were starting wanting to get independence from it. The kind of Yugoslav National Army, which was sort of the headquarters were in Belgrade, were being sent, but to kind of stop these dissents, etc. And that's what had happened previously. Um, But the city itself was encircled by these extremist Serbs or troops who were kind of availing of extremely... um, developed weapons kind of storages that the Yugoslav National Army was having. So it was a completely um, unequal kind of situation because essentially in the city you have the civilians and around it you have extremely powerful army and weapons
1: and do they want you out was it an ethnic cleanse was it or was it more of a power grab
0: the, it, the i think it was it was possibly partly symbolic they also wanted to to hurt the city to hurt the civilians to hurt the kind of you know almost their you know sarajevo in a way represented uh, the, the most beautiful thing of the mixing of all the different ethnic groups, you know. So, you know, when you go to Sarajevo, we will always tell you, you know, in the city, there's, you know, in extremely close proximity, you have the main synagogue, the main mosque, the main Catholic church, and the main Orthodox church. So there was something, was kind of a term that was being used, was herbicide, you know. They were trying to kill the city and the spirit of the city as well. Um, so it was um it what was a symbi- word
1: sorry i'm my mind's blown by that word herbicide. yeah imagine trying to kill something that is ostensibly an inanimate thing and yet it should have been the epitome of religious beauty and community and and a win for everyone
0: yeah yeah exactly Gosh. so it was it was trying to kill the spirit of the city Amazing. as well
1: as 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 well
0: as obviously you know stopping water supplies electricity supplies food supplies and you know sometimes as many as 900 bombs falling on a city in a day
1: 900 bombs in one day you're 11 years old at this point Zlatan talk to us about you and your family realising that this was darker than you could have ever imagined when did you realise we are in trouble here
0: uh, again, it's that sort of, you know, fluid period at the yeah. start when you're not sure. And, you know, I could sort of see it now, obviously, with Ukraine, you know, people are thinking, will yes, we leave? Will yeah. we not leave? And, yeah. and there had been many attempts where, you know, my parents and I thought, OK, maybe I'll go with our family friends to Slovenia because they're going there. Because, of course, this is only going to go on for a short period of time because this doesn't happen to people like us. This happened to other people. This yeah. happens p- people in history. Or on TV. Or in TV. Far away. Somewhere far away. Yeah. You push it. So, um there was a kind of a month in which you could still leave the city, and we kind of thought about it as a family. I'm an only child. It was 11. The the you know the idea of leaving my parents at that age, or me and my mom maybe leaving, but leaving my dad, etc. So. We didn't leave. And the 2nd of May, so about a month after the start of the, the, the kind of the first gunshots, the 5th of April, 2nd of May was a, a day when it really, the city really closed down, shut down. There were tanks in the city. And that's when we knew this really is, um, this is really serious.
1: It's It was the longest siege of a city in modern history. Um, and this is uh, longer than the siege of Leningrad, as it was called then. And it yeah. was 900 days. Um, just to put this in context for people listening this morning, that... There was over eleven and a half thousand people killed, men, women, and children in the siege. Many of whom you would have known. Yeah. Um, and as a child, you decided to take a diary out and 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 take note of that. Can I ask you why?
0: So I started writing a diary <coughs> about a couple of years before the war. So when I was about nine and a half, as I, one does, as sometimes. one does, yeah. yeah. Age, so yeah. I was doing it because I thought. Um, well, there were three different reasons. I'd read the diary of Anne Frank. I was always into reading and writing. So I'd read the diary of Anne Frank. I read the diary of Adrian Mole, <laughs> And I had a friend. Uh, That's
1: a kind of kind fast. Of uh, yeah. yeah. chasm between the two. But and yeah.
0: then I, I had a friend who was about three years older than me. And because I didn't have any sisters or brothers, she was always somebody I looked up to. So Martina had a diary. So I thought I'm going to be cool like Martina and keep a diary. I'm going to be funny like Adrian Mole, And I'm going to have a friend in this diary the way Anne Frank had a Lovely, friend okay. in Kitty. And- And so I started writing this. It's extremely boring. It's of no interest. It was a sort of a a time capsule kind of census question of, you know, like this day I got this. You know, these are the grades I got. This is, you know, there's a birthday party for somebody this weekend. We're going here. They're boring. You know, sometimes literally writing everything's okay. in a kind of a little. It was very sweet, though. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah,
0: And kind of colorful things and putting stickers and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, then I continued writing and I decided I'm going to dedicate myself a little bit more to this and write a little bit more about what's happening in my life, which, again, was still birthday party and, you know, school, etc. And then when the war started, well, it was just natural to continue writing about what was going on mm-hmm. now and it was a very different diary. So I was now noting how many bombs fell on the day, how many days without electricity, who was killed, who was wounded, who had left, who did we maybe get God, a letter from, you what know. What a difference
1: from the, you know, party here, you know, got addressed there mm. to this number of bombs fall and... Such a swift transition mm. for a child to have to,
0: yeah, I get mean, into. I, as much as I guess you know, the war, the the war entered my life and all of our lives. You know, it entered the diary and it was just sort of permeated into that, and that's all I could write about. There was no school; I didn't go to school for nearly two years, so I was inside because the danger was outside, and. Uh, and really what I did a lot is I was on my own and I was reading books and, and this diary was indeed the friend that that some, you know, I could tell things to. I didn't want to burden my parents also, you know, about certain worries that I had. They had enough to be worrying themselves. So it became a friend uh, and and it became a record.
1: You're a mother now of a three year old uh, little girl and you probably have a very different head on your shoulders now than you would have um, maybe understood even in your 20s or before. Um, Can you imagine what your parents went through trying to protect you in those dirty cellars that you talk about? You said the cellars is ugly, it's dark, it's smelly. I'm quoting your diary. We listened to the pounding shells, the shooting, the thundering noise overhead. We even heard planes. And I realised that this awful cellar was the only place, <coughs> excuse me, that could save our lives. Talk to me about your parents trying to mind you an only child.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, you know, th- there was that period in maybe which they could have, you know, sent me out along with some family friends to leave. They didn't. You know, I'm sure they felt worried and guilty about not doing that on the On the other hand, we did stay together and there was value in that as well in terms of, you know, families separating from each other and, you know, being torn is a really traumatic thing and something you carry. And I've seen it with friends who decided that, you know, the mom would go with the kids or the child would go on their own. Um, But there's nothing, you know, apart from kind of telling me not to go stand next close to the windows and making sure that I stay in the house. I mean, there was one morning... Um, there was a park opposite kind of the road from our apartment in Sarajevo and that's where I used to go and play and my mom had to go visit her parents and she told my dad, knowing that as a daughter-father kind of relationship I'd be able to sort of swindle things out of my dad more easily than her and she said... She has to stay inside. You make sure, make sure, don't let her do the thing that she does and you're going to get out. She has to stay inside. And, you know, thankfully he did make me stay because a bomb fell into that same park and killed, you know, a girl that was my age that was in kindergarten with me and, you know, various kind of young kids from that area. So, you know, apart from telling me not to go stand next to the window, make sure that I was running into the cellar and trying to kind of, I guess you know, still instill softness and light and life and kindness in in this. But in, in very practical terms, there was not that much that they could do pr- to protect me.
1: Yeah, uh, you saw the picture. I don't know if you saw that picture of, of what they're doing with the with the young toddlers there in Ukraine. Mothers are writing their yeah. literally name and number on their back, their bare backs, mm-hmm. uh, just in case they, they go missing in the middle of the war. And uh, as you know, in Ireland, we have... Um, Mostly mothers and children, and um, sometimes grandmothers, are joining us now in our villages and towns around the island, um, fleeing. What, what kind of what you just you could be talking about Ukraine the way you're talking. I mean, it's remarkable uh, for for another generation in some ways, uh, as you described Sarajevo.
0: Yeah, and I was, you know, I was looking some at the very start of it. You know, some of those images of you know little girls with their hands stuck to the window, you know, saying goodbye to their fathers, and that is an image that was existing, you know, thirty years ago in Sarajevo. So there's so many parallels, and it's actually been. It's almost been kind of like a physical reaction seeing all the stuff on it, Ukraine for really, me. Yeah. In what
1: in what way? It
0: just feels like well, first of all, with that image of that that girl, that toddler with you know the the, the date. Like I'm looking at that date, and that is not too far from when my own daughter is born. It's the same year, and uh, but I'm you know, but it's it's also seeing this. So you know, there's. I feel like I'm sort of sometimes literally like punched in the stomach and like I lose a feeling in my legs. I feel it's almost like a physical reaction to this mm. because it's so incredibly familiar. It's visceral. I really know what, what it is that they're feeling. Yes. I really, really, truly know what they're feeling. It's absolutely horrific that it's happening again. And, um, and you know, just thinking of all these tragedies that are unfolding
1: in, in all these lives. You, you you sent a tweet to a young girl who landed in Ireland called Yiva. Yeah. Um, tell me about that.
0: Well, I just saw, I was kind of scrolling through Twitter and I saw an article that um, a young girl from Ukraine was welcomed into Ireland um, and she was clutching in her hands a copy of a diary. And I just Im- responded immediately. She's 12. I was 13 when I left Sarajevo as well, um, clutching a copy of a diary. And it just resonated so much with me. And, yeah. you know, it's 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 unfortunate. It's so sad. It's horrific. It's unfair that it's happening again.
1: It's a horrible history repeating itself. Um, yeah. And um uh, it resonated with you. I think the other thing I, I keep seeing, and um, I've, I've noticed watching it, uh, the footage is older people making their way through rubble, and trying to hang on to their dignity, uh, clutching, you know, a, a, a cloth to their mouths and and crying. And I've noticed a number of Holocaust survivors. they must have been children in the Holocaust who are now being moving from Kharkiv or Kiev or whoever they may be. Again, you know, such displacement, such horror uh, mm. in in their lives. And I'm just thinking about your. Your folks and how they, uh, their own dignity was challenged by, by, by the need to feed you and to water you and and themselves uh, because they ended up having to. You, what collect rainwater and just do anything to survive?
0: Yeah, it's it's sort of you know this kind of generational thing is interesting because it's you know even during during the war in Sarajevo, we're thinking okay who's I was thinking who is the one that generation that's hit the worst? Like yeah. who when is the worst time for this to hit you? Is it when you're this toddler whose you know mother is now writing in Ukraine their name and and details on the on their back? Is it that because they won't know anything else? Is it sort of a teenager who's just about to kind of have a sort of you know start kind of an independent that, you know, is it when you're meant to go to college? Is it, you know, my parents who were at the height of their lives and careers in their 40s? Is it my grandparents who were kind of in their late 60s, 70s? You know, instead of enjoying quiet time, my grandmother had to go and stand in queues and wait for water and they were freezing and they didn't have medication. When is the worst time? And it's it's really... It's it's heartbreaking at all times, of course, but it does, you know, that older generation really does, does you know, I think young people are quite resilient and, um, but I think that kind of the break that happens to you and I guess the inability as a parent to do, offer what you're meant to to your child, you know. Um, it's, it's too sad.
1: Your, your attempts to leave were were hampered at every turn, uh, Zlata. You, there were convoys. There was a Jewish convoy, a Slovenian convoy, an Adventist convoy, but they, none of them could, you could never get on them, or you just just couldn't catch a catch a catch a break necessarily. But strangely, your diary was the, your ticket to freedom, mm. if if I could be so crass as to call it that, because um, you know there were a handful of books published in Sarajevo during the siege, um, and somebody saw your diary, saw the. What what you might call a terrible beauty within them, and um, I think it was a French photographer, really, who who might have changed your life. Would that be fair to say?
0: There was, a, there was a day, basically because school stopped and I kind of didn't properly go to school for two years, um, there were these little kind of, they were called summer schools, organized in local areas mm-hmm. and one day a teacher there asked, I was in the kind of literary group and a teacher asked, does anyone have keep a diary? Because they wanted to publish a diary. Audrey Hepburn, who was a UNICEF Goodwill ambassador, was meant to come to Sarajevo and they wanted to present a diary of a child so they collected all these diaries around the city. Audrey Hepburn never came, nothing happened. I continued writing my diary I gave them a different copy, I kept mm-hmm. my original kept going and um a year later i just got the word that you know they decided they will publish it it was published on this awful green paper because you know as well as not having toilet paper and water and food and electricity like how do you publish a book in the middle of a war so it was published on this kind of green paper by a french humanitarian organization and they decided to hold a little kind of um a book promotion. It was just an event in a jazz club in Sarajevo. They had the Bosnian TV news there, but there was one Spanish guy who I have no idea how he (laughs) wandered in there who was a journalist staying at the Holiday Inn, which is where all the journalists were staying in Sarajevo, who heard about this and was there and then went back to Holiday Inn and said, guys, there's this, you know, 13 or 12 year old. uh, Her diary's just been um, published. It's got a little translation in English. She speaks English. This is the, you know, quotation, the Anne Frank of Sarajevo, which I didn't obviously find kind of I I didn't like it because I was very much living at a time where the fates that, you know, happened to her could have been mine, too. And. Um, but they started coming and all these journalists started coming to the doors and, you know, knocking and doing pieces, etc. So the story of the diary got out. But there was a French photographer and unfortunately she passed away since who became mm. a real good family friend. Okay. And she said, you know, there's these French publishers, they're brilliant and you should try. And if you want to do something, these are the guys. And all we wanted is at least just for me to go and be safe somewhere. At this okay. point, it was approaching the second winter of war. There was no more firewood there were no more trees to be chopped in parks for us to warm ourselves you know there was no food there was you know the danger just kept going there was no end in sight and it was an opportunity to ask okay well if you you know if you maybe publish if we give you the diary to publish is there any chance you could just get me just zlata out uh into safety so and that's all we wanted but it ended up being that my parents both my parents and myself left and it was because of a French publisher and a diary.
1: You you got out of there, um, uh, with your with your parents and. You've been living in Ireland for how long?
0: A long time, twenty six years. It's uh, going to be twenty seven years this okay. year.
1: And how did why Ireland? I wondered. It
0: was we were in France for a couple of years, yeah. and then we wanted to move to an English speaking, at the time, cheaper country, and uh, so <laughs> <Well> we <qualified, laughs> so they uh, so we moved here, and I went to school, and I went to university in the UK, and, and yeah, I've just kind of the, the you know it, for a long time hoping that we'd go back, but then you know life, you know, it's like yeah. I got a place in Oxford University so it was like you're not going to you know let that go you're going to yeah. go to that and then you fall in love with someone and you stay a little bit longer and then this and then you get work and somehow okay. 26 years 27 years accumulate in your life where yeah. you're going really I've been living in Ireland for 26 years
1: yeah how that happened yeah. okay <clears throat> I, am, um, I remember says the text vividly reading Zlatan's diary as a girl At the same age as she is, an incredible piece of writing and possibly one of the most impactful things I've ever read. I'm sending her love and best wishes. It must be traumatising at the moment, as you've you've outlined yourself. Um, A friend from Sarajevo had to flee with her mother, says Sean, uh, and sister eventually ending up in London. Their father had to stay behind. And because of this, it was the end of the parents' marriage. They didn't see each other again and people uh, don't dream of being refugees, which is a nice way of putting it. Is there anything you can say or do for the people coming over from Ukraine now do do are you taking any part in in in, in their story?
0: Um I did spend a little bit of a, a short a short period of time because in my kind of other world I work as a documentary filmmaker and yes. I was there present when you know filming when a mother and two children arrived from Ukraine and were welcomed incredibly warmly and hugely generously into an Irish family's home. And uh, I mean, I was, you know, broken watching them come out from yeah. the airport and be, be, you know, it is a relief. And it's also then a start of a new struggle. Hard and a new for you journey. To,
1: to try and make a documentary and not be... Invested,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's you know, I mean, it comes from the from the right place. Um, so, I mean, it's a message for our Ukrainian people, but it's also a message for Irish people. You know, there's so much goodwill now. Let's not lose the goodwill. Yeah. There's so much openness and goodwill. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in in, in a, with time, people kind of go and the goodwill maybe runs out. But like, let's keep keep the pressure on the goodwill and the openness and the kindness.
1: Um, Thank you for being with us this morning. It's it's such it's such an appropriate time to have you here to to to, if nothing else, um, remind us of how little we learn, um, from from history. Sadly, but um, thank you for that. And your diary will will be there forever for people to to read and and learn from. Hopefully, in some shape or form. So I wish you and your family every happiness, Zlata. Thanks for being with us this morning. And Zlata Filipovic joining us live in studio this Tuesday morning. Back shortly. Let me welcome Uno Hagen to Studio. And it's lovely to see you.
4: Thank you, Ryan. Good to see you. We too. were
1: we were just talking the brief time we, we, we you sat down, and I said, "How are you?" And then I thought, "Is it one of the more ridiculous questions to ask somebody who's who's just been bereaved? How are you? How do you feel about that question?"
4: Uh, no, I think it's the right question to ask because I think what's worse is if somebody doesn't mention uh, or refer to the fact that you've had somebody who has died. Yeah. I, th- you know. When somebody asks you how you are, Mm -hmm. uh, it gives you the opportunity. The power is with you to say if you want to open up or not, or if you want to do the real Irish thing, oh, I'm fine or I'm grand. But it does open up that possibility of saying, you know what, I'm not doing so well today.
1: It gives you a choice. Uh, It
4: gives you a choice. And I think Irish people are very good at that. We're we're open about death and we're very good at the ritual of death. Mm -hmm. We don't uh, hide away from it.
1: You, it's, you kind of alluded to to something there, Una, which was that some people don't like it at all either. You know, some people mm. don't want to know, so they could. I'm sure you've met people in the last two months since Colin died, and mm-hmm. and who have become a little awkward maybe around you, or certainly around the language of grief. Yes, rather, and, and they're not bad people. No, they just don't aren't equipped. Absolutely, be and fair what to say. they don't
4: want to do more than anything is make you upset, right? Or put their foot in it, yeah, or sound awkward. Um, But... I, I try and put people at their ease I, I don't have any difficulty talking about Colin I might get a bit weepy which that's might make people a bit uncomfortable Well it but might make
1: them un- That's the way it is it you might, know It might make them realise that you're human and have emotions and that's mm-hmm. what that is all about uh, Let me say from the get go I was a big fan of Colin Keane's uh, You know He that, was a great sure. fan of yours You're nice to say yeah. so but I No I, he
4: was because I don't know whether you know he was um, the head of radio uh, told him that he was to uh, keep an eye on you when you came in <laughs>
3: <laughs> he wouldn't be the first.
4: <laughs> no. And he had, you had a meeting with you yeah. and bought you coffee yeah, and right. he came back to uh, came home. And he said, "Ryan Tubridy doesn't need any looking after." Him. Yeah, that's so
1: nice. I, like I was, I didn't know that, but I mean, yeah. I know I met Colin, and he would have been a mentor of sorts, actually, Ooh. because he would he would have taught us how radio worked. And mm-hmm. I loved his pro. We were only reminiscing recently about his his uh, the loving spoonful I always talk oh, about. Yeah. You remember those the rock and roll programs he Fantastic. did, and they were great. But he taught us about radio and about listening yeah. and about yeah. uh, these different things. He was yeah. he worked as a producer and a reporter, and um, he was. Uh, I found him very warm, mm-hmm. extremely affable, but also really. And this is why I was. I was had a great conversation somebody with somebody that said, "What is it you need in life?" Mm-hmm. And we we all agreed over a pint or two. It was curiosity. Yes, if you're curious. You'll never be bored.
4: No, absolutely. And he had that. Yeah. Uh, Ed Mulhall used to be the head of news, worked with Colm for a long time as a producer. Um, After Colm died, he described him beautifully, which was a force of nature. Mm -hmm. And he was. He was endlessly curious about people. Um, he wanted to know I, I know that phrase he wanted he loved telling stories Yeah. he loved telling o- letting other people tell <laughs> okay. their stories yes, you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and he always thought the best pictures were on radio Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't know whether you remember Italia 19 yeah. uh, and Colm was the producer of the summer series then with Pat Kenny and yeah. he sent he had the amazing idea of sending Nell McCafferty to idea. Italy
1: what a great it's turning everything on its head it is yeah, absolutely
4: yeah, yeah, I mean, so left field, there wasn't even a field. And I remember him (laughs) coming home and saying, I said, yeah, that's wonderful. Because, you know, the best pictures are on radio. She was a wordsmith. She created wonderful pictures and and she won a Jacobs Award for it. But yeah, I mean, he had great curiosity about everything, you know.
1: In the brief time we've talked You've, you've said something twice that, that really strikes a chord with me Which is And then he came home and said Yeah He came home and said Your mm-hmm. man's grand He came home and said Nell McCafferty mm-hmm. um, You obviously had that class of relationship He'd work mm-hmm. all day And you'd work all day I should say mm-hmm. But you came home And oh, said
4: yeah. Yes <laughs>
1: How was your, yeah. isn't that the beauty of the great relationship? That it you, is. That you really and look forward to going actually, home to saying, how was it for you? Yeah. And how it tell me.
4: And that's the thing I miss most because yeah. uh, every now and again, I think, oh, I must tell Colin that. And um, like we were together for 36 years and I've, over the years, I've watched people kind of in couples in restaurants or in yeah. pubs or whatever. And they yeah. sit there. They don't say a word know,
1: to I each other. I, I don't understand And I'm understand thinking, it.
4: what are they there for? Yeah. Whereas we just never stopped talking. Yeah. And uh, it was a great exchange of ideas. Now, it wasn't always the easiest to work with because he had a particular idea. He grabbed an idea. Mm. He ran with it. Driven. He knew what he wanted to do with yes. it. And we worked on a number of books together. And I'd be trying to put the elbow in and saying, would you not think this? Would you not think that or whatever? Uh, and if he was unmoving... Sorry, I just hit the microphone. He was unmoving. I would say, um, God, you're very hard to work with, <laughs> And he'd said, that's not what Burt Bacharach said. <laughs> and the problem was that Burt Bacharach, when he had done an interview with him, had signed his CD saying, great to work with you, Colum. Yeah. So this was always a comeback. That's I, could, great. I could never get around He to had it. written
1: evidence from <laughs> yes. Burt Bacharach, one of the greatest song composers of all time. Uh, yeah. So you, it was hard to come back to I that. It was, um, absolutely. How, but yeah, we
4: had a wonderful kind of um, sympatico we, it, sympatico yeah. yeah kind of Sounding board Kind of relationship How did yeah. you meet? We met in the RTE canteen God And there's us. nothing romantic There's nothing yeah. more There's to nothing say. romantic About the RTE canteen <laughs> no, let no it No matter it's, 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 You know Even if you'd had ten pints It wasn't going to be romantic Never Colum had been seconded over To Morning Ireland It was a whole gang of people After You know Having breakfast I looked at him He looked at me <laughs> He rang me Even though he said I rang him I didn't. Oh, we have a little uh,
1: historical record issue here. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah he okay.
4: wo- you know you Wore blue that song. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. It's it's not Charles Aznavour. Uh, yes, I remember well. Well, yes, that's yes, it well. Yes, yeah, uh, it's. And then we just kind of took it from there. You know.
1: Okay, so it was a meeting on the campus here in yeah. RT. And what struck you about him? I mean, ultimately, when you did go and date him, and what have you? What What was it about him?
4: What What you spoke about before his endless curiosity and enthusiasm. You found that for very attractive. Things. Yeah, I I like that. I like people who are engaged and who want to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way, I'm kind of the opposite. Pretty kind of like him, but bit more of the opposite. I would be more kind of laid back. I would have my own kind of interests and hobbies and what I would be very, very interested in. But Colin seemed to be interested in absolutely everything. (laughs) Everything. But he also, you know, believed that you should be interested in what he was interested (laughs) in. (laughs) So that was the line of least resistance. I remember going to a match. uh, I think it was like our second date and it was Shamrock Rovers playing a semi-final, FAI Cup semi-final in the pouring rain. And I thought, oh my God, yeah. this is the choice. Do I have this to put is, up with this? This is commitment. <laughs> this is commitment. Yeah. So I went with it.
1: And you had a happy life together. By the sounds of things, I yeah. mean, I only saw you from the outside. I knew you a little bit in mm-hmm. passing, and things things were going, you know, very very well. But I suppose, in some ways, um, I had the pleasure of when he was a little boy of meeting your son Sean. Yeah. Do you remember me? me yes, me I do. You very kindly gave it. I think it was a toy cat to to my youngest, That's or to right. my oldest, as she is now. Yeah, yeah, and. I remember him, if you don't mind me bringing his name up, because mm-hmm. he, as the toy show guy, I get to meet a lot of children in, mm-hmm. in the course of my life. But I remember his brightness. Yeah, And I really mean that. I'm not trying to fa- falsely remember something to help you along mm-hmm. or help this conversation along. I sincerely remember him being a very bright boy and a very kind boy and a, and a very um, engaging boy and engaged yeah. Young, yeah, young, I mean, he took boy. after his
4: dad in that well, way. Well, I'd say his mother you had know? a part to play too. I don't <laughs> yeah. want to take away
1: from that. Either. No, but
4: it's interesting you talk about his brightness yeah. because uh, on his gravestone it says "bright shining star" in Latin, which we got your old Latin teacher to translate, Miss Fitzgerald. She, Fitzgerald. Yeah. she was his, Sean's Latin teacher as well. Amazing, and he was. He was. He was
1: wonderful. Yeah, really lovely. He, he, uh, people will will uh, who don't know your story will immediately say, "Did she just say gravestone?" Yeah. Because they won't know what happened to Sean. Um, I'm not going to make you say, uh, I don't want to bring you somewhere uncomfortable other than to say, uh, to ask you what happened to him. Yeah. Um, If that's okay with you, Una, take Mm -hmm. your time. I'll be brief. (laughs) And please do. And we'll all understand that. But just to put everything in context and don't be uncomfortable.
4: Yeah. When he was 17, he got uh, cancer, osteosarcoma in Mm. the right leg. Yeah. It had spread to the lungs. And after two and a half years, he died.
1: Yeah. And that is the great unimaginable and the great aberration in, in, in time. Yourself and Colum had to live with that. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what Sean's, Sean's death did to you uh, as a couple or to you as, as a person. Do you mind me asking you that?
4: It, you know, it, it shattered both of us separately and together. Um, I remember after... The funeral, I put my hand in Colm's hand yeah. because there was a the kind of question, you know, what do we do now? The world has ended. Yeah. And um, we went home. But actually, one of the things that really um, kept us together, and it's a, it's an odd little observation, that night Colm had a terrible cold. And I remember I said, I'll make you some Lemsip. And I was doing it in the kitchen. And I had looked after Sean for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I needed somebody else to look after.
1: Yeah. And you looked after Colm. Yeah. And the lambsip was a bridge mm, of it sorts. Was Isn't a way that a strange back. thing to say? Yeah. A way back, you said uh, something very profound there, which was uh, you were shattered together and, and apart. I'm trying to work my way through what that means. You, you I presume we you, you old, We
4: both handled it separately Okay, in our own way. Colm could not deal with Sean's illness. Which I understand. Mm. And I think a lot of men find that very mm. difficult to deal with. How did that manifest itself? Uh, he ended, he worked uh, a okay. lot. Okay. A lot, a lot, a lot. And mm. I think he felt, he felt like he couldn't do anything. Powerless? Powerless. Yeah. Whereas I was running around, I was cooking to beat the band, I was feeding, showing up, I was arranging medical appointments, I was, you know... Uh, with chemotherapy and all that kind of thing. You have this schedule of tablets that you have to Mm. give. Mm. And so I was absorbed in that and I was working in here and that kind of kept my brain going. Um, So we, yet I was shattered too. Uh, But it's very difficult in that situation when something is so deep to actually kind of come back together. And that took a lot of time.
1: I spent... um a lot of pretty much all day on Saturday as having having spent some time with him on Friday evening with Barry McGuigan
4: oh yeah
1: whose daughter died yes and you know I spoke to Barry Mm -hmm. on uh, by Zoom for on the Late Late Show some about a year ago or or thereabouts and he could he could hardly finish a sentence Uh, yeah and and that word you use shattered it's a great expression because it's the right Mm -hmm. expression not a great expression the right expression and on Saturday with Barry, we travelled to, together to Crowpatrick and then we ascended mm-hmm. and descended much of the hill together, the mountain. And I got the sense from him, he's such a lovely human being, as are you, and I got the sense from him that it's never, ever very far No, it's never over. It's never, but it's, it's, never. All, it's just so it's close to happened, your throat or, yeah, your, or it, somewhere.
4: Time is a funny thing. You know, I know this happened... 14 years ago or whatever, Um, yet it feels like yesterday at the same time. There's that weird sense of time shifting. Uh, The only thing I will say to people who have undergone this loss is that, and it's a cliché, but clichés are Uh, clichés for for a reason, reason. time does help. You end up remembering the good things, the fun you had, you know,
1: did you have a lot of fun with Sean when he was? Oh, brilliant! Was he was he a fun son to be he around? Was. He was. Great. What did he like he to do? What was he so into? So good time.
4: Well, I tell you, when I think of sort of happiness, yeah, let's and go Sean, there for a minute. Yeah, I remember we were um, one summer walking down, you know, the second lake and Glen, the yeah. Glendalough yes, down do. towards the abandoned mine, mm-hmm. and I just remember Colin and Sean were ahead talking away, yakking away, as they always did. They had a great relationship. Mm -hmm. I was strolling along behind, probably carrying the picnic. And Sean was dressed in his... It was kind of like a cycling gear. It was so cool at the time. The shorts, the multicoloured top. And, of course, he was seven or eight. And as a boy of that age, Mm -hmm. you just want to wear the one thing every single day. I don't know what (laughs) it is. So I used to have to crawl in at night take the clothes, yeah. try and dry them and get them ready. Mm-hmm. And that to me sums up, he, he, it was just, it was the simple times yeah. that that we enjoyed, that kind of mundane family life that was the best time.
1: I remember a friend of mine being in a bit of bother not too long ago. And I said to him, you know, your brain is a computer hard drive. Mm-hmm. Just access the good stuff. Yes. And 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 while the bad stuff is going on now, mm-hmm. You've got loads of these little files. Yeah. So just go to Glenda
4: mm-hmm.
1: play the file. Yeah. And go to that place. Yeah. Isn't that what? Isn't that what you know? Rather than, than, than yeah, stuck it, in the quicksand of unpleasantness. Absolutely.
4: It just find it's it's almost like um, say there's you. It's almost like a scale, and and when John's death happened, it was all black. But then gradually, as the years went by, there was more and more kind of light and happiness came back into it. I don't know how it happens. And I don't think there's a time. I don't think there's a schedule. I don't think people can get annoyed with other people and say, oh, come on, get on with it. It just it, it's up to each individual person how they get through it. You you—you
1: know? you wrote books together with Colm mm-hmm. and and you've been talking about. Yeah, you, and we talked about it before as well about uh, near death experience mm. and your 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 mutual interest in mm-hmm. in that. Um, and I th- I think I get the sense that people need to know that this was not to do with Sean. No, this wasn't to do with some sort of you guys grasping mm-hmm. at spiritual String. straws. Yeah, is that fair to say? Absolutely. And you want to be I'm clear so glad about you
4: said okay, that. Okay, because yeah, I because, I
1: didn't want to uh, yeah. get ahead of myself or to mm-hmm. offend you in any way. But I get the sense that this was this was a much broader uh, scenario for you. Do you want, yeah. you want to talk to me no, about well, that? Well, as
4: you said, Colin was endlessly curious. Yeah. Um. And he, but also he, his father died when he was aged eleven. I think that had a big influence on him. I don't it think it you. ever he ever got over it. Yeah. And I think I was thinking about this last night. I was last night. I'd been talking to your producer Jack, and he just mm-hmm. prompted something. I think Colum was trying to find the answers. For a very, very long time, you know, what are we doing here? What happens when we die? Is there a God? Is there a heaven? Yeah. What is a good life? Is the, you know are we judged? All those kind of, of existential. Issues. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, and like Colum used to say, you know, we we plan for uh, a trip away. You know, two weeks in Spain. We think about it. We organize it. We get the clothes ready. Mm. We pack the. Every, and yet for the biggest journey that we will make in our life, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. Death. Death. Yeah. We're, we're very good in Ireland at the ritual stuff. We're very good after death. Mm-hmm. It's the bit before that we have a real difficulty with. But like a column was, had had researched the near death experience uh, I remember him taking out an article from the uh, it was a Wexford paper, a man who had undergone a, a near death experience um and that was around the early nineties um so and it was sean uh, didn't get ill until two thousand and four
1: yeah so it was it was there um do do you think Colum um found some piece in his research that allowed him to accommodate death um at the end? Oh, totally. Really? Totally, in a positive way? In a totally positive oh, way. Okay. He said,
4: I know where I'm going. I am know I am going to the light. And this is a very important thing because Colm in... This book, The Journey's, Journey's End, end yes. which he w- he w- had wanted to publish himself before he died, but he, didn't he, have the time. I
1: could across you only to say mm-hmm. that he was meant to be sitting where you are now.
4: Exactly. We, yeah. we just
1: for listeners to know, we we uh, Jackie, who you mentioned, was mm-hmm. talking to Colin to say, "Look, we're looking forward mm-hmm. to Ryan's looking forward mm-hmm. to you coming in to have the chats," mm-hmm. and um, you know, and and then he got too sick. Yeah. And then, we, yeah. we, if you don't mind, we'll say that now that then he died. Yeah, um,
4: yeah, that was on the Friday. Yes. He was
1: talking to Jack, and
4: he was admitted to hospital on the Monday, and and that following Friday he died. That's how quickly it happened. So he wanted that, that was the one thing that caused him any agitation was you have to bring the book out and I said I would. And so, that's And I, that's what I'm doing. And
1: what a title of a book given yeah, what happened. I, I mean, like it's just, it's, you could say it's cosmic or yeah. something, but Journey's End is, 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 yeah. is the book. Let me ask you about Colum's Journey's End then just for a moment mm-hmm. um, because it ties in with the question I was asking before I interrupted, uh, which was uh, this sense that he knew where he was going mm-hmm. and you said he was going to the light um, does the light, is that a religious light or is that uh, a spiritual light or how would you describe that?
4: Um, Colm described it very well. He said the most important feature that sums up heaven is the presence of the light. It's where we want to go.
3: Yeah.
4: He said it is lo- love, joy, happiness like you've never known before and also complete understanding of everything, implying that it's our consciousness um, that survives after death. And he said uh, he was absolutely of the belief that death is not an end, but the beginning of something entirely new. And that our consciousness survives and creates, uh, uh, and we therefore then live on in a reality of our own making. And that it's not, if you think about, you know, we were all taught, you know, clouds in heaven. We'd be playing harps. And mm-hmm. and big Peter, beard, big beard, beards. Yeah. St. Peter at the <laughs> gate with the big book and all that. It's yes. not like that at all. Yes. You know, you have to put that out. It's it's much more sophisticated than yeah, that. That seems, it,
1: almost feels like for children. Yeah, 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 it, yeah it is. Yeah.
4: yeah. yeah. Well, it, I think it was an attempt. Like Language is not very good at explaining yes. stuff like this. I think it was people's attempt to explain. Yes. Uh what what happens when we die but that's that that you have to put that to one side it's it's a non physical kind of place
1: you were with Colm when he, when he breathed his last mm. breath and and uh, you held his hand mm-hmm. um did you get a sense that he was a man at peace
4: yes he had he was very much into um a bit like george harrison from the beatles yeah. um that you had to prepare for death, and that was more to do. With, even though he had he had done his list of you know my top twenty songs and picked these for my funeral, um, and I'm not being smart. He was always saying that you have to um, look back on your life, weigh up how you've been, how how you have lived your life, and he had done that. He knew where he was going, and he was. I mean, it was such a privilege to be with him. It was in the Waterford Hospice. I held his hand. I told him I loved him. I told him that Sean loved him. Um, that he was a great dad, and that he'd left a wonderful legacy. And it was kind of again into this, you know, tying in with the journey Journey's theme. End. Yeah, it was like you know when you're on a flight. Yes, and. You're coming into land and it's the perfect flight. Mm-hmm. You feel the engine slowing down. Mm-hmm. And that was calm. It was the engine slowed and slowed and slowed. And then you find you're on the ground and it's just so peaceful. And he's, he just slowed and slowed and then passed away. And there was such a sense of peace when he died. It was just, it was incredible. How have you been? Okay, actually, okay, because okay. Karma said uh, just sort of about a week before he uh, he passed away, he said, "You know what? I think you will be fine." Really? and he had he had done a lot of preparation to make sure that I would be, you know, just practicalities. Um, but he said, "Yeah, he, and I, I'm doing okay." I, I kind of it's after months, thirty yeah. after thirty six years, yeah. it feels slightly as if. Your half of you is gone or you've lost your right out or whatever. But uh, but I know he's in a good place. And I know, as he says, you know, you your consciousness creates the reality uh, that you want. You meet the people that you want to meet. Okay. And I know he'll be he, he wherever he is, he's with Sean and with the people he loves. And
1: you believe that that Colm and Sean are. Maybe wandering wherever it is together.
4: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, catching up.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Holding each yes. other. Yeah. If you can, do so yeah. in that, in that uh, way you talk of the consciousness. Consciousness. Yeah. Um, that must give you great strength in a day. It does, to think absolutely.
4: That. I'm, I'm glad you said strength rather than comfort. When people say, oh, that must be a great comfort, I always think that it, it kind of implies that it's a sort of a comfort blanket that you're carrying. Yeah, your I say,
1: Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? <laughs> <laughs> God
4: love you. you yeah, know, no, no
1: one needs that No, You're their demented
4: by grief. <laughs> so that's, no, I
1: understand. Uh, no, but strength, strength back to that it word, It gives yeah.
4: a great strength mm. consolation. Mm. Uh, and like I've gone on this journey with Colm through all the books Um And I've understood a lot of where he was coming from. And the great thing about this book is that it's not just the near-death experience because in the near-death experience, people come to a border or boundary and stop. This is where he tries to go beyond that. And he's done that by, you know, reading the science, all the religions. The history. I, I, and that, history. It, it's,
1: it's infused with the past. Oh, absolutely. And past, Even and, and, going
4: back to, yeah, say, Newgrange, yeah, you yeah. know, just in our own little patch of the world, how that is built on light that's why the, and the importance it, of it, it.
1: Right. And and that's why the book is, is, is you talk about how, un, how poorly prepared we are in life for death, as yeah. opposed to the rituals after which we're all great at. Yeah. Um, but this book offers some class of um, manual uh, almost like uh, to talk about your to use your uh, aviation theme like a flight manual for yes, uh, for the way out absolutely <laughs> you know? a route map a route map that's, you know that's I think it, that's, your, yeah. that's what the, the book does the
4: other thing though that you have to remember is that there is a thing called a judgement we don't get away scot free mm-hmm. and it's not like St Peter at the pearly gates um, we do have to kind of Rec- deal with the, a reckoning, as it were, okay. and a judgment. Sometimes this happens uh, in the presence of the superior being or God, but more often we do it ourselves. And if this review happens very quickly, we go through our whole life. And I thought, OK, I, I judge myself. That's fine. I'll give myself a pass. I'll go straight to heaven. Mm. But actually, it's more complicated than that. Colin says, you judge what you've done through the eyes of other people Mm. and the impact that you have had on other people. And he says, very important that you do that review before you die, um, because otherwise you can have, you you might have to end up, uh, you know, doing a fairly, like there was a story of a woman called Anne, and she she knew she she hadn't been that bad, but she hadn't been that good. It was to do relationship to do with her mother. Um, and she realized that she would have to do something about that. Mm-hmm. And then she felt this wonderful sense of forgiveness came back and repaired her relationship with her mother. So we have to do that kind of work before we die.
1: I, I'm just I was looking at you t- talking. and I was completely captivated by you talking about this story, Anne. and, and I find myself going. You know, we've been talking about column as a communicator and as a curious person. You have that skill in, in spades yourself, <laughs> you know. I mean, I hope that you... I'd love you to do talks and mm-hmm. to... To, to visit, um, I don't know, places that might want to hear, mm-hmm. certainly about your books, a book tour of some sort, but it, you do it so well. If you don't mind me saying so. Yeah,
4: oh, God, I, you know, do you know what? I could talk on radio or on television, no problem, but in front of a r- oh, real public people, speaking. public Isn't speaking. Isn't that funny? Oh, you, no. of, you throw in
1: an audience in your goose, are you? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, come on, I, Una, I can't believe it. No,
4: I mean, studios are just lovely and yeah, warm and comforting. radio is a
1: warm is, medium, as absolutely, you know. Yeah, 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 much nicer, yeah. 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 Claire says, um, I'm utterly captivated, there's the word, by this wonderful woman in this interview. Her understanding of love, grief and life is a lesson to us all. Another says, what a beautiful lady, Una Huygen is. You are an amazing woman to listen to. Your story is heartbreaking, but what a positive attitude. A truly beautiful lady. Una speaks, says Louise in Cork too, so lovingly about Colm and Sean and eloquently about her grief of losing both. And these conversations are so useful to help us learn how to genuinely accommodate people, uh, people's grief rather than avoid the unmentionable... Yeah, which must be so isolating. Uh, another says, uh, What a resilient, softly spoken, beautiful lady, bearing her cross of grief and loss with such grace. My heart is breaking for her in tears. In my kitchen, Sean and Colum were so lucky to have Una in their lives and I wish her all the best for the future. And may they rest in peace. Pat Smith getting nostalgic when he says, When uh, Miss O'Hagan read the news, the news was the star. Mm. what a nice way of putting it
4: actually that is a real compliment that's a real compliment (laughs) he's made my day
1: (laughs) after all that uh, could you uh, tell Una a huge thank you for all the wonderful books on near death experience and saints that were written by herself and Colin such a comfort for people and a much needed nod to our spiritual side said Moira McCann in Wicklow um And listening to Una says, Maeve, my late mum was also a force of nature and always maintained an interest in life and never refused an invitation to an event. That's what kept her going and did not uh, go, she did not go gentle into the good night, as the poem says. And Joan says, lovely to listen to Una. I was 36 years married to my wonderful late husband too. And like Una, I often wondered about couples out to dinner without a word between them. I can relate so much to Una and what she's saying during this great interview this morning. And Laura says, I remember Una from school in Eccles Street.
3: And being in awe of uh, her
1: depth of knowledge and ability in the debating society. Well, in order to debate, you had to do it in front of all your peers. That's a hard one.
4: Yeah, but you know, when you're a teenager, you fear nothing.
1: (laughs) That's true. Uh, I love listening to Una uh, this morning. I had the pleasure of teaching their gifted son, Sean, in first year, already an independent thinker at... 13 yeah. It's from Mary A retired teacher yeah. So I have Actually
4: everyone... she, uh, Colin was particularly pr- He always said to Sean Make up your own mind
1: Yeah you know? Think for yourself Think for yourself uh, Thank you for being with us This morning Thanks Ryan um, I've enjoyed it I, I hope you have Because mm. you're, you're remarkable Two months after the passing Of your beloved husband And he was a friend Of so many people Around here and uh, so many years after the passing of your beautiful son, Sean, for you to come in here to speak like this uh, so frankly and so elegantly and so eloquently and with such dignity is a mark of who you are. So thank you. I wish you every happiness as much as possible. And in the dark days, I, I wish you every light. Thanks for having- You know, Hagen. Thank, thank you for your time. 9.30 this Thursday morning. Great to have you with us. Let's go straight to our guest this morning, Stuart Ramsey, Sky News Chief Correspondent. Good morning, Stuart. Lovely to have you with us. Morning, Ryan. Thanks for being here and congratulations, if that's the right word, on your extraordinary career in journalism. Is it something that you aspired to do from your childhood or did you fall into it? I sort of fell into it, to be honest, Yeah.
5: actually I was a drummer in a band. And, um, Tell and us I'd more
1: immediately. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I was a drummer in a band um, um, well, from, from about the age of 12 or 13, but, um, I, but I wasn't awfully good, I have to admit. And I was at university, play joined a new band, played much more rugby than I actually played band and got kicked out. And um, a friend said, why don't you come and try journalism, which I'd always been interested in, yeah. but I'd never been particularly good at English. So anyway, I, I sort of joined into that. it uh, worked pretty much for nothing for a few years, and uh, that's probably about... 36 years ago yeah.
1: like and, and here we are to the, you know it's funny you should mention that uh, drumming I was watching saw photos of Phil Collins recently I'm sure you saw them and god what, what drumming has done to him physically it's probably just as well you kind of stepped away from the sticks
5: yeah, I know, because he's actually quite poorly, isn't he? I, yes. know. I don't think he can sing, and I think he has trouble playing. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure why that is, but I know. Do I think they are back on the road, aren't they? Yes, they seem to yeah. be.
1: I mean, look, I, that, that was a swerve in the road. We'll keep going up with the with the journal. I remember when Sky News came on the first time on, on TV, and I was bowled over by it because we didn't really get American television, so I didn't know what constant rolling news looked like. But it was transformational, wasn't it?
5: It was, and it's hard to believe that it was sort of so new, wasn't it? CNN had existed, of course, um, but we didn't really see it very often. Mm. Um, I think they did one deal. I think it was one of the space shuttles um, uh, exploded, and I think the BBC, Two went live to CNN for the whole coverage, and no one had seen it before. Mm. And it was uh, transformational for, for, for television and has incredibly still going. And, in fact, the format really has hardly changed at all. Um, and what, what has changed now, of course, is the commitment there is to so many different media platforms yes. and the digital output, et cetera. And that's what's really moved on in recent years. But you actually, if you like, the TV bit is pretty much the same. What I'm going to
1: do, Stuart, with your permission, is to leap head on into what happened in February, if you don't mind. Because I think most of our, our listeners now know the ins and outs of the war in Ukraine. Um, I mean, it is to an extent a black and white issue with uh, Putin's war against this extraordinary country. Where were you that day in February? Where were you heading to and why?
5: Well, interestingly, we were being, attempting to head to a town called Butcher. Now, we all know... Of Butcher now and we've seen what has happened Mm. in that uh, town, but of course it was almost completely unheard of then It's just outside of Kiev. We've been trying to get there all day to take I mean It is probably a 30-minute drive from the center of Kiev, maybe 40 minutes or so Mm. But it had taken hours and hours and hours because of checkpoints um many of those checkpoints being quite jumpy um but they were all Ukrainian anyway we re- reached basically the last one the whole of the battle space had changed we could see about a kilometer away russian helicopter gunships attacking Uh, places near uh, to Butcher. And we concluded it was late. It was getting late. It was sort of afternoon, late afternoon. Mm -hmm. We decided it was simply too dangerous to go on. So we decided to return to Kiev. But all the roads we had travelled on were now part of the battlefield. So we had to find a a different way through. And we came up to a checkpoint, a police checkpoint, asked them the best route back that they could see. And they pointed us down a road. Now, I think a lot, something got lost in translation, I suspect. Maybe there was a turning we missed. We don't know. But anyway, we were told to go down this road. We could see an intersection coming up in front of us and then first bang uh, uh, on the car. I think the left-hand tyre uh, burst as well in whatever it was that hit us. We sort of rolled to a stop and then uh, then the ambush started proper with a shooter in front of us and a shooter to our left and pretty much firing constantly. Um, At the car. What was remarkable, you know, what is not remarkable is this this took place because we've known even then, but we've seen it since, uh, that civilians had been attacked in their cars Mm -hmm. as they were attempting to to get out of of the battlefield. Um, What is exceptional is that Richie Mockler, our cameraman, rolled on it all. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's not unique, it's happened before, but it's very rare that you actually see the entirety uh, of an attack on, on what is ostensibly a civilian car.
1: Well, you're in this car. Uh, you've got gunfire coming from all sides. Um, can you park Stuart Ramsey, Sky News chief correspondent for a second and tell me what Stuart Ramsey, friend, you know, brother, son, is feeling crouched in the back of that car as this is all breaking loose?
5: Yeah, I, 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 we, we, we are, I'm very experienced at wars, yes. and we are quite trained. But at that stage, we, we, the firing had started. It stopped. We thought it was a mistake. We identified ourselves as British journalists, and if anything, the fire intensified. And I remember thinking of my my wife and my three kids, who you know are used to me being in dangerous situations, yeah. but I didn't think I was getting out of this one. I was convinced that was going to be it and just before i was actually shot I remember thinking i know i'm going to die i wonder how much it's going to hurt and funnily enough being shot I actually brought me round, if you like, from this sort of, I'm just going to sit here, I know it's over, to, no, I'm not going to sit here, I'm going to get out. Wow. We Two uh, members of the team had already gone. Um, uh, uh, Martin Vowles, who's one of our uh, producers, and our local fixer, Andre Levenko, had actually got out. So there was me, Richie, and Dominique Van Heerden, my, my uh, producer, who was still in the car, mm. realising that... Actually, we had to get out at this stage. And it was a matter, you're sort of on your own. There's not much you can do to help one another. Um, And it really, that was all I was thinking, right? So Dominique left, she's out. There's just me and Richie. I'm going now, Richie. It was very funny. I got out of the car and I hear, you can hear it on the tape, with Richie saying, what are you doing? And what I didn't realise, I basically got out of the car and stood up and sort of wandered over to the side of the motorway and effectively dived down a sort of 40-foot... Um, embankment and landed on my head where I'm pretty certain I knocked myself out oh, good because loss. the next minute I remember well, the next thing I remember is Richie um, being next to me but I didn't see him come down the bank but he's probably about 30 seconds behind me
1: That is a hugely um, you know, existential moment if you wish uh, in the back of the car thinking as you say of your family and thinking oh, I wonder is it going to be painful um, and then, in the, in the in the same breath, I need. Actually, I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not into dying at all. I'm not thinking about the pain. I'm thinking about living and getting the hell out of here. As this was happening, you had to, you had identified yourself as a journalistic automobile. Uh, ordinarily, I would have thought, and I don't know, so you can clarify, Stuart, in the course of events that you'd get a pass for that and say, "All right, get out of the way." You know, we're trying to conduct a war here. In this case, that wasn't the case. that, that didn't happen.
5: No, that's right. We've been told by the Ukrainian authorities not to actually put press on our car, oh. mainly because Russian, um, what they described as saboteurs, had been driving around claiming to be foreign journalists. And basically, Ukrainians had said, you're more likely to get shot with it on the car than, than just slowly come to the checkpoint and you know, getting your hands up. So that's why our car, which is just a little family saloon. Um, with five people in it, but, you know, we've got armour on, but we're not wearing helmets, and you could never tell from a distance, what you know, who was in that car. Um, mm-hmm. But once we identified ourselves, we, we, we thought if it was a mistake, they would uh, stop firing. They wasn't, and we know later from the police, both who came to get us, and then the next day, where they tried to get our... Gear and stuff from the car. They came under heavy fire from exactly the same location. And another family, a day later, according to reports from um, an, uh, another news organization, uh, pulled up behind our car and. Two of the four members of the family were killed. What right. um, the mad, the driver, who was a man, was allowed to escape because he had a baby in his arms, but his daughter and his wife were killed. So we know that area um, was going bad. What well, I would say, just now, we know exactly what was happening there because it's the road that leads to Butcher, and we know this is that's the M06 is what it, we were on, but it's also known as the E40, and all of that highway. Um, you'll have seen pictures of of, of bodies and cars. And there's quite a well-known picture of a guy who gets. Out. It's on a CCTV and there's a tank on the road and he just gets shot dead. That's literally about okay. a kilometre from where we were. So what we suspect happened was that this was the forward operating Place for the Ukrainian, sorry, for the Russian invasion of Kiev from the west, and that Butcher was probably going to become its headquarters, its its staging post, and that all the area around was now being flooded with Russians. This was very early days, so we suspect that we just ran into one of the early forward teams uh, that the Russians had put in place, and their job was to kill us. I mean, there there was no expectation of them not. I mean, they, they didn't stop firing at all.
1: Oh, gosh, I've so many things to ask you. Um first and foremost, are you okay with me playing the audio of that uh, attack on your car?
5: Of course, yes, because okay. I'm it's funny actually, interesting for 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 your listeners. Yes. The audio is actually more disturbing, I think, than the video because you can hear the voices, etc. But uh, yeah, please please be my guest. Oh, that's right.
3: That was a bullet.
5: No, it wasn't a was bullet. It? it wasn't. Something blew up under us.
6: Something
3: went bang. Oh, okay. oh there's a bit f*** of okay, off hole. OK, hall. OK, OK. Oh, look. Whoa! 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 What the f***? Whoa! Whoa! Whoa!
1: Stuart, what, what? How does that feel to hear that now?
5: Pretty horrible. <laughs> um, God, it's terrifying. Yeah, it was. You know, just in the car was three. Sorry, I'm a bit shaken by no, that. Yeah, yeah, I, I I I, I No, I didn't no, mean no, to, no, it's yeah. fine. Okay. No, it's fine. But you know, that's three minutes. So it's about three minutes and twenty seconds of 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 of, that, of Richie's shot where there's firing constantly. It actually gets on worse than than that bit that you've shown there. But you can see how. How quickly it developed and um, how, you know, you do feel absolutely powerless because you you know you have to debust, that's what it's called, right? You know you have to get out. But it's really easy to say that when it feels safer in the car, which it isn't, than it does than just being outside. especially if you're not sure where you can get cover we didn't really know if there was an embankment i mean anyone could have we could have been a different part of the road got out and had no cover whatsoever Mm -hmm. uh the embankment was there it was very very steep i think both dominique and martin actually went over onto the cement which just they just rolled to the bottom but um luckily everyone is wearing armor so yeah it hurt but it wasn't you know you're not going to actually get seriously damaged but Staying in the car was not an option because you you would definitely are going to die. Dominique said to me, she said, I, I reached this conclusion. I will definitely die in the car. I might not if I get out. Yeah. And got out. And incredibly, she got out into the most enormous hail of bullets that somehow missed her. I mean, it, the whole thing is miraculous. By the way, oh. I thought talked to um, friends who are in the military. They they practice amuni- ambushing drills. I mean, they have no expectation of of anyone getting out of a car if it's a proper ambush. But for five people to get out is impossible, It's is their take on it. Maybe one or two, but they would be so injured that they'd be finished off later. So, you know, with that, that is what is miraculous. The other thing, we don't know what happened to the left shooter. He definitely... See, my side of the car, there's bullets and the windows have gone, so I must have been hit from the left. But for some reason, he seemed to withdraw. What we don't understand or what we don't know is why there wasn't a follow-up. It was one, something that we were very concerned about, so we, we sort of escaped down the side of the motorway, then made our way into a, a factory unit, effectively, mm. where three caretakers that sort of took us inside... We, know, we now know, we know we're probably there for four hours for about two hours of it a battle continued outside and what we think happened is that they were following up. they were coming to get us but that a Ukrainian unit of some description, perhaps drawn by the noise of the firing engaged with them and because there was definitely it was a firefight it wasn't one way mm-hmm. and um, maybe that is what saved us because after a while it went quiet. Um, we'd been in touch with the outside world by this stage um, and um, the police were asked we now understand by the country's secret Service to come and get us even at night because they clearly had intercepts which suggest that our building was going to be attacked again or destroyed we have told that it was but we I can't confirm that we, we just be told by the police that surely after we left it was attacked but we don't know that for certain but we know that they did. They were instructed in the end to come and get us because they had told us they'd come in the morning, which he sort of expected because it was very dangerous. It was dark dark by this stage. But they did come that night, thank goodness.
1: I think it's so important. Um, This is journalism at its most pure and, dare I say it, important because when we look at tens of thousands of mostly women and children coming into Ireland, Stuart, and you've seen the same in the UK in some respects, that sound that audio clip we played which you lived through is the sound of warfare in 2022 it is the sound of barbarism it is the sound of why people are here uh, it, it, there are people here today who were in that car mm-hmm. on different stretches of road around ukraine this is what you're this is what you wanted to do this and this is why you're you're in some ways on today to talk with us because you represent in some ways the civilian Experience of this horrible war.
5: Yeah, listen. There was much discussion uh, at Sky News amongst the executives as to whether we should do this story. I got involved. My team got involved uh, because, of the, you know, on the on the face of it, you could say this is just navel gazing. Aren't we brave? But it what well, it wasn't, and I yeah. tell you why. We wanted to show yeah. that this is exactly what is happening to ordinary people. There were many instances like this. The exception, as I said, is that we filmed it all. Our story was not about us, even though we were the people in it. The story is about is this is what is happening. Don't listen to people who say this is lies. People are still saying to me now, you know, unidentified Twitter Twitterers who are saying you made it up. It's like yeah, okay, yeah. so I actually get shot. Actually, you can see the sky. <laughs> the yeah. car is there. Yes, it's yes. being filmed. You know, it is there, and they still say it's not true. So it's important that we could get this out because. You know, the Russian machine is brilliant at saying it's just not true. And as we've said, the, the, I mean, the ambassador uh, to, to Washington, uh, the Russian ambassador to Washington, which sent me commiserations and said you were shot by Ukrainians. We weren't. Yeah. We, we have people saying that it didn't happen. It did. And it happened to lots and lots of yeah. ordinary people, as you say, terrifying. They don't have training. They don't have body armor. No. They don't get out of the car. Simple as that.
1: You know the lying is. So I've been doing a lot of reading and 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 watching and listening around uh, Putin's uh, t- uh, regime, and the lie. Remember the little green men uh, going into. Yeah. You, <laughs> you got, and I think I remember one of the presidents ringing Putin and saying, you, "They're your guys inside, don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, he's uh, just a brazen bully of a of a of a of a, and he's quite evil. Let's face it."
5: Yeah, I mean, I was in, going back to 2014 14, 15, I was there for, for all of that from Crimea and, uh, yes. and in Don, Donbass. I was in a base called Debaltseve. I was with true two Russian tank battalions <laughs> from Moscow. They were friendly. I was talking to them. I yeah. used to live in Moscow. We would just talk way about where my house was. Mm. And it's still, that day, the, uh, Putin said they weren't there. Yeah. Then eventually, it was put to him, sort of absolute proof, and he said, well, they were on leave. Yeah, it was just incredible. It's um, incredible. And it's Orwellian. They it their it,
1: tanks. <laughs> <laughs> taking their tanks out for a Sunday drive. I mean, we're laughing because it is so preposterous. And as I say, it's Orwellian, the language that's used uh, and in the fog of war. I don't think all sides are blameless with, with this language. But this particular case, we can say, certainly with Putin, uh, he's a congenital liar. And you talk about saboteurs. I just want to talk briefly about that because... Putin has, seems to have this other thing where he has the kind of hands-off approach where he gets these he gets creatures I think they're called the Wagner Group who come in or you know Chechnyan war lords or you know military death like the black and tans maybe here once upon a time but just the sort of slightly unhinged crazies that cause the the, the, the really barbaric terror in a, in a town or a village in Ukraine does that make sense as a question sorry Stuart
5: yeah, yeah sort of deniable operations that's, okay that's Wagner Group are, are renowned for this of course, he says that they're there to get rid of Nazis. Yeah. The uh, owner-stroke leader of the Wagner Group has a swastika uh, tattoo. Yeah. So you know, you'd be under no doubt the sort of people that uh, that mercenary organisation are. Yeah. They've worked a lot in in Africa. They've caused chaos in certain parts of Africa. So much so that you know, I think it's Mali. The French have withdrawn because the Wagner Group was so active. They're effectively working against them. Um, they they are used like the Chechens to come and do some of the worst. Um, Excesses. What we're seeing in uh, Butcher though. It doesn't seem that it was Wagner. It's quite possible I was ambushed by a Wagner group because it was so professional. I mean, it was, you know, it's unusual. I've been shot at loads of times. Mainly they miss. This is an incident where they actually mainly didn't miss. Um, and the pictures of the car are remarkable, just how how many shots mm, were mm. fired at it. But what's happening in Butcher, because the civilians who are there talking us are talking about them being, it seems to me, a fairly standard uh, Russian outfit. So, it's all about command and control. It's all about, I suspect in Butcher, that that, 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 that was such a mess of an operation that the local people paid because... It was such a mess by the Russians and they lost a lot of men and I suspect that's why they've gone slightly crazy. What we don't know is what's happening in some of the areas where they're still in control. Is it as bad as that we've seen as they've withdrawn from the north? Um, what we know, that Mariupol in the south, for example, is being absolutely flattened. I don't know what's happening in the, the towns around where the Russians have moved in because they are there as well. But um, I think you know the indicators are if this is going to be... You know, a, a huge war crime involving multiple yeah. sectors, yeah. not just that northern bit. But we'll see. We'll have to
1: it, see. It, it, it is, again, that word uh, Nazi. Uh, I keep thinking of the Nazis uh, going into towns and taking out locals and, and Jewish people. And it's starting to have that ugly, ugly echo of history constantly in the last 48 hours.
5: It does. And frighteningly, uh, it, 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 it is frightening that it does seem to be repeating itself. I was in the Chechen war. Uh, the Russians did awful things there as well. Uh, interestingly, again, really bad supply lines. So they pull off and just flatten places. Clearly, in this um, war, um, they intended to actually go in quick, occupy yeah kiev and yes. and, and change things. it went wrong, and so they've, they've they've resorted to that pulling back and just using um artillery and and and, and uh, long range missiles to attack uh, towns and cities but it's it's when they occupy areas that it, it is, seems to be pretty pretty nasty, and we know that thousands upon thousands of people are being bussed away into Russia proper. Goodness knows what's happened to them and how they're being treated we We really don't know
1: Stuart, will you head back?
5: Yes, I will. Um, once, I mean, I'm, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm healing well. I'm not 100% match fit right now. Yeah. Um, I think the team is, is going to have a little bit more time. But yeah, we have every expectation that we will go back. And um, uh,
1: cutting across your rudely, does your wife hate you a little bit for that?
5: Um, Tony is, uh, does actually have a, an issue sometimes with yes. what I do. I mean, I was with her, her and my uh, my daughter, Tavy yesterday. We were discussing, I was saying, it's probably I will be going back. She did make it clear, well, both of them made it clear they weren't very happy, mm. but I think they sort of know that I probably will be. I don't necessarily have to go back and go straight to the front. I mean, there's loads more stories. It's probably just as important to do yeah. with the refugee crisis, etc. Yeah. So you could probably go in perhaps do more of a humanitarian side rather than just being shot at.
1: <laughs> okay, Stuart, um, thank you so much. Real great to talk to you this morning and that insight is extraordinary. I wish you every safe journey possible in your, in your endeavours and maybe we'll talk again someday either in real life or uh, like this on Skype. But in the meantime, to you and your crew, thank you for your time and, and Godspeed. Thanks very much. For right, nice to talk to Stuart Ramsey joining us live this morning. A breathtaking, as I say, insight and reflections on that that, that horrible, horrible war. Um, and as Mary in Wexford says, God bless Stuart and keep safe, grateful for all those brave reporters who are showing the world the horrors of Putin's barbaric war. It is 23 minutes to 10 o'clock and you can email, by the way, ryan at That's an important one to know because uh, over the weekend and any time that suits, give us a shout and we or at least drop us a mail and we'd love to hear from you on anything that catches your mind. Let me say hello to Marika Lean. Good morning, Marika. Good
6: morning. How are
1: you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I need to kind of, with you, I need to go back to you being around 15 years old or thereabouts in the Netherlands. You decide, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. And you got a job on a fishing boat of some sort in Scotland. So what were you doing on the boat?
6: uh fishing oh, <laughs> tailing prawns mostly yes most most of the time and um yeah that's what i was doing
1: yeah okay a bit of adventure bit of adventure in your life and the yeah. boat then lands in dublin what happens next
6: no no the boat no, sorry. the boat was actually it was based in in scotland but we were going between northern ireland and scotland so okay. i went over to northern ireland and then hitched the lift down to dublin Meaning to go to Galway, and I got a lift from um, a man from Loughray, who brought me down to Loughray, and then said, would you like to come down to the house and freshen up and um, meet my neighbors?
1: And who were the neighbors?
6: And the neighbors were three bachelor farmers, 60, 70, and 80 years of age, um, the Fahas, or the Fahis.
1: Were were they brothers, or...?
6: Three brothers, yeah. Okay. Married, mad for music, mad for life. So uh, I said, and he said, oh, yeah, they're such interesting characters. You should really meet them. So I walked up the road and met them. And indeed, they were very interesting and very nice men to talk to and um, had a great time. Months later, decided to visit them again at Christmas. Okay. And... uh, Never went, never left.
1: <laughs> you never looked back after that.
6: Well, no, no, I no. I stay. I stayed living with them then for about three and a half, four years.
1: When you said living with them, were you in their house?
6: Well, sort of, more or less. They had one of them. They living in. They were living in an old thatched house, and they had a. The county council used to um, provide people in thatched houses mostly with um, sort of a prefab back in the day in the. Early 80s, I'm talking. Mm. So I was living in the prefab because they were only using it for um, as a cattle shed. Really, they pulled the toilet out of it <laughs> <laughs> and they stored their their uh, fodder, their their, their blacks and nuts in it. So I moved into that. <laughs> and uh, yeah,
1: you, you make yourself sound and like we, a calf.
6: Uh, no, 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 no. Just properly proper a proper little prefab. All right, all right. No um, running water or anything, but it was it was fine
1: and what 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 uh year are we talking about what type of what what part of uh,
6: it was early eighties I'd say could be eighty three eighty four thereabouts
1: and the brothers introduced you to thatching is that right
6: that's right, yeah, one of them used to be the sort of the the the, the thatcher of the house and he used to keep the roof in good condition and he was doing a few jobs for other people and he injured himself so they thought it was a great plan to introduce me to it. Yeah. And they showed me how to make scallops, which are the fixings that you use, and draw bundles of straw. And before I knew it, I was on top of the roof, thatching, thatching their roof. How, how, long does and, it ta- how long does
1: it take to thatch a roof?
6: Well, at that time, now you wouldn't do the whole roof, especially not their house was in such bad condition. You'd only patch where it started to leak. Okay. Just strokes here and there and patches and... So there were different times. It's not like now, where you do a whole house in one go or half a house. But back then, mostly people lived from year to year, did bits and pieces on their houses as as it needed to be done.
1: And you became ultimately became a thatcher.
6: Then I became a thatcher, you could say, yeah. Uh, I was completely fascinated by the whole thing because I wasn't from a I, from a farming or attaching background, and I thought it was so interesting that you could make a roof out of local material, you know, sourced locally, hazel, grown locally, the straw, and you just put made it into bundles and brought it up the roof, and you had your ro- roof covering. And yeah, from the minute I was up on the roof, it, I I was fascinated by it. so But back then, there was no money. Nobody had money, and mm. touching wasn't a great career, really.
3: Mm.
6: So I was doing bits and bobs everywhere. I was doing touching everywhere, and I was also doing other work everywhere, because you couldn't make a living off it. That's how it sort of all started. And then I got married into my 20s. I got married to Reed Thatcher, and got introduced to a different material, Reed. You... And was convinced that this was a way... <laughs> Superior material than the material I was used to, destroy. Ultimately, I don't agree with it now, but back then.
1: Okay. Did you say you married another Thatcher?
6: I married a Thatcher, yeah. And how, how did him. you meet him? Well, that's a really long story, but we we used to know each other as teenagers. We were, we were both runaways, really. Okay. And that's how we met up and... Um, then years later, we met up again, and we got married.
1: You got married and had some children yeah. together. And uh...
6: and we had children and a whole lot. And then about, I suppose, 18... Yeah, so I was only allowed to be a sidekick, really, and doing all the yeah. <laughs> the groundwork and the scallops. And even though I had been a Thatcher in my own right before that, it was um, anyway, about 18, 20 years ago, maybe he decided he was not interested in doing it anymore, and he gave it up. Yes. So uh, I didn't want to give it up and I stayed going and ultimately I did an apprenticeship to gain a bit of self-confidence and um, I've been thatching ever since.
1: You must be one of the few uh, Thatchers, I was going to say female, male Thatchers, but just Thatchers in Ireland, is it—is it common? Are there many people left doing it?
6: Um, not that many people doing it. There's a good, good few in the West here that I know of. Okay. Not that many women. I only know of one other lady, Thatcher, but I'm sure I don't know everybody. So there could be more out there. But as far as I know, there's there's another lady up in Sligo.
5: OK.
1: I would have, obviously like everyone else in the country, you, you, you pass by a thatched cottage. It always looks very romantic and it always looks very beautiful. It always looks like uh, artistic and kind of old fashioned. But um, people just say, "Oh no, the, 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 you know rodents will live in the in the among the the thatching in the roof and all all these kind of is that a myth or you know are they are they? Well, it,
6: it's it's definitely a myth when it comes to reed thatching, reed as a material, because there's not that much interest in living in reed because there's no there's no food for them in it. But in the past, um, you know, just in the straw, there would have been mice mostly because there's always a bit of grain left in it. I see. And they, they would have smelled the grain, I'm sure, but from living on the tach, it it's definitely not. I don't think you get many more mice and rats in thatch than you would get in a normal house or a normal room. OK, OK. And I you
1: mean, you tend to use reeds, is that
6: right? Um, well, I prefer straw, but yeah. in the West now, it's 90% con reeds because... On uh, the unavailability of the straw and the modern farm techniques have unfortunately led to the demise of straw so it's nearly all reed at the moment.
1: And in my uneducated mind reeds are common and everywhere and easy to come by but I think I may be wrong on that one. Where do you get your reeds from?
6: Reed is very common it does grow everywhere there's water really but In order for it to be harvested, you know, it has to be properly managed and it has to be cut on a yearly basis and it has to be dried in a certain manner. So there's a lot more to it, to the harvesting of the reed than just going out there and harvesting it. Now I'm sure you can do it and you can use it in its original form, but you get a much better and nicer finish when you're using properly managed and cut reed that's straight and stored in under in, dry conditions. So most of it is imported. There is Irish reed. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, not in everybody's, it's inferior to the imported stuff because of pollution and fertilizer runoff and all the different issues we have here. And the methods of harvesting here are not perfect. So it's mostly brought in. It's mostly imported from Eastern Europe and uh, Turkey.
1: Oh, Okay, so many of the modern thatcher, thatched roofs we'll see will have reeds from Turkey, possibly.
6: Possibly, yeah. yeah, right, okay. For the 20, uh, 25 years mostly, yeah.
1: Are they the ecological dream?
6: They are really, uh, except from the carbon footprint at the moment, bringing them in from yes, abroad. Yes, yes. It, 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 if it was managed properly, you know, all the materials, reed and straw, can be grown in Ireland. Um, it's a highly... It's a great roofing material really because it's not only roofing but it's also very highly insulating and uh, it's not derived from oil like many modern insulating materials. It's carbon neutral. Uh, It's a natural material. There's no issues with disposal because it can just compost away. In my opinion, (laughs) Mm. it's a material of the future really. Yeah, Yeah.
1: yeah, and and you, you spend a lot of time up a ladder. Does that mean you have to work sideways?
6: Yeah. That's (laughs) Oh,
1: that, that's <laughs> up challenging. Up and down,
6: up and down. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm right-handed, so I work mostly on my right. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there's different different methods of stretching. You can walk in strokes and you can walk horizontally. But either way, I do <laughs> I do twist my body around quite a bit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> ah, that's that so you're, you're you're agile on the, on the ladder making. I would imagine very, it's yeah. it's kind of zen, is it? Is it a very peaceful thing to do or is it frustrating? I, I
6: I find it very peaceful to do, but it all depends a bit on the weather and as you know it's not that crazy in the West. <laughs> yeah. So uh the, the last year now has been very peaceful for me. But if you're walking in rain and wind it can be uh, yeah, it can be can be uh, a different experience. <laughs> you're up and down with your covers the whole time because you don't want your touch to get wet in between and yeah, it can be very frustrating. Also, the amount of work you get done on a rainy day is, is minimal.
1: I can imagine. But
6: um, I'm an optimistic person, so I always leave in the morning thinking it might clear today. Yeah.
1: I hope so. I hope so. We got a lovely message from Evelyn in Clunbu, which on the road to Mayo <laughs> in Galway. says, Marika, thatched uh, thatched our house, it is so beautiful. She's a wonder. You're, you're a wonder.
6: Well, I mean, she's... She's overdoing it a bit, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it,
6: it, it's only really a trait, you know. It's 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 no magic, or it's not it's not rocket science.
1: Well, another person has been on to say that you're a wonderful thatcher and a beautiful person, that, and that you thatched their house in Gort. So, you're are, are you are you in demand? I mean, how many houses would you thatch in a given year, Marika?
6: It's hard to say because you know, between you know, full roofs and repair, you know, sure. I might do, three, might do three full roofs maybe, and then repair and ritching, you know, comb the ritch.
1: Edwina but, in, Le- in Leitrim says we've over 150 people growing oats in Leitrim for the straw as we couldn't source the correct length, just like Marika. So, Leitrim County Council and Creative Ireland are funding uh, organic oat seed to share throughout the county in Ireland as we and we make straw boy costumes. Check well, that's,
6: out. A, yeah, that's so. a brilliant initiative and I would really, really applaud that. I think that's really great. I mean, many thatchers and especially straw thatchers have, ta- have been talking about the issue of the availability of the straw for so many right, years. Right,
1: right. Well, people can go on that, uh, sowingtheseedproject.com. That's like a Tears for Fears album. I I love thatched roofs, said Mary in Donegal. I had the pleasure of staying with my cousin Breezy last autumn in her home in a thatched cottage in Glentys where she was living an authentic traditional cottage life. Unfortunately, she lost her cottage to fire a few weeks ago. Oh gosh, and it's so devastating. But the thatch will uh, once again be put back on the cottage once yeah, it is and restored. Yeah, that is
6: absolutely a huge, huge problem to house owners because um, home insurance is ridiculously oh, I can expensive. Only, I can imagine. and a lot of people and a lot of people can't i i hardly know anybody that can afford it or can yeah. can get can get it
1: yeah it's a privilege really obviously uh, by the sounds of it. um yeah. but I, I think it's also an important part of of the rural landscape so thankfully people like you are keeping that story alive marika um thank well, you yeah go ahead
6: well and on, on that note i would actually like to um to use this um platform yeah. to um sure to To call for the for an increase in the in the in the in the grants in the uniform uh, attaching grant that all attached houses are entitled to because that hasn't been increased in many many years i'd say twenty years or more and in order to preserve the natural Irish heritage, the custodians of these houses the owners they do need financial help and um i mean even though there is help out there at the moment it's only a a tiny amount of the actual cost of detaching. So I think it's very important, and maybe house owners together could get together and lobby or do something because everybody is confronted by this problem. And uh, in line with other build- building materials, the, the price of thatching or the price of detaching materials has also increased hugely. So, I mean, it's going to be harder and harder for people to keep their houses in good order. Yeah. And uh, everybody likes to see that, and everybody loves the humble traditional Irish cottage, but they're under pressure.
1: OK, well, look, keep keep, long keep the story alive, Marika. It's been lovely talking to you. Uh, and I hope I'll, I'll pass you by someday on my travels around the west of Ireland. You'll be halfway up or down absolutely. a ladder,
6: depending. Well, and
1: I'll say hello. Well,
6: absolutely. Looking forward to it. Likewise. Thank, thank, you, for thank you for your time. Me, yeah, right. An absolute pleasure. Best. Take Bye. care for now. Enjoy your weekend.
1: Uh, Marike Lean, uh, joining us. Originally from Holland, as you can hear, but lovely uh, Galway twist her accent uh, every now and again on a bend in the linguistic road. Lovely.